This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conversations with Tom. I am here with none other than Ryan Holiday. Dude, thank you for joining me. Of course. So this is going to be the hopefully most laid back. And laid back is the wrong word. It's going to be far more informal. As okay. I was explaining before, I want to push my own thinking in real time, yep. which means I may fuck up your flow, which okay. on impact theory, it's all about. I want the guests to get into flow. I want to, like yeah. you said, walk them through the book. I want I want to set them up to get their ideas across in the best possible way for the audience. Okay. Um, so that show will continue to do its thing. But what I want to do with this is push my own thinking in real time. Sure. Chase things that I'm fascinated by, which some of it will almost certainly be a miss, right? I'm yep. going to go down some rabbit hole and it's going to end up being shit and we're not going to cut it out. We're like, just going <laughs> to let it rock. This is going to be unedited. That was All the right. other thing. Impact theory is not, um, I can't scale it. It takes so much of my time, so sure. much of the team's time that it was like once a week, if I tried to do any more, the team started having heart palpitations. Yeah. So I said, all right, let's come up with a new show format, something that um, okay. requires less than 11 hours of prep on my part and an interminable amount of time on theirs. Um, and, you know, just see yeah. where it goes. See what happens. And you had asked me a question just a second ago because yeah. I said, I'm violating the number one rule of Perennial Seller, one yeah. of your amazing books, um, which is don't try to do two things at one time, mm -hmm. which is precisely what I'm doing. Uh, and so you had asked what the two things yeah. were. And they are, um, I am simultaneously trying to build the what I'll call the nonfiction side, the social side. So it's me yeah. staring directly into a camera and telling people, sure, this is how you think, this is how you act, and you're going to get farther in life than you otherwise would. And then the other side is pure fiction. It's creating comic books and movies and TV shows. And while there is massive amounts of synergy, there's no question that it is not the same audience. So every person that I pour into the nonfiction side, there's not, they aren't necessarily backwards compatible to the people on the fiction side. I hope the people on the fiction side are completely compatible the other way. And that it's sort of a graduation system where we capture you emotionally with the fiction. And then hopefully we can graduate you ultimately into the nonfiction. So I don't think that's a, one, I very much relate. And two, I'm not sure it's a contradiction. And if I'm remembering what I'm saying in perennial solar, I think my argument is don't have two contradictory goals at the same time. So someone goes like, I'm trying to write a work of, you know, literary fiction for fancy people. And I want to be really famous at the same time. Like right. or, or they, they'll do, or they're like, I want to sell lots of copies but I want to win lots of awards. And those are, again, not always the same thing. And so you're asking for two separate... What the mistake there is you're, you're pursuing two different outcomes with one product, mm. right? And that's, if not impossible, very difficult. I very much relate to what you're doing because I do all sorts of different types of books, right? So um, 
and, and and there is this hope or this dream that like, so I write these self-help books, you know, Ego's the Enemy, Obstacles Away. I would have thought like, hey, I write this book, Conspiracy, which is like a nonfiction book about how, you know, sort of power operates behind the scenes mm-hmm. and it's driven by narrative. I would have thought there'd be like a one-to-one connection. And that book is done well, but it's almost exclusively done well with people who didn't read the other books. Mm-hmm. And so in, in a way one read is disappoint disappointment the other read is that it's actually additive right and then i would say both those things are irrelevant because at the end of the day as an artist as a creator as an entrepreneur although you have to be driven by business and you have to be driven by like success because if you're not like the the, the you run out of fuel uh is in in the form of money but mm. like you do the things that get you out of bed in the morning. Like you don't not work on something because you're, uh, you think it will do well, but you're not interested in it. And conversely, if you're super interested in something, it's usually a mistake to just like shove that away. And you know what I'm saying? Like you got to go where the heart goes. That is interesting. That's an interesting summation that I didn't expect you to end with. Um, I want to go back to something you said. Okay. So I'm I'm sort of mulling over that notion of you have to go where the heart goes because I think the the real truth of it is you have to have the business acumen. So you said you yeah. you can't pretend that money doesn't exist and this is what I find with beginning entrepreneurs especially because I'm the guy that's out there like hey you really need to have a passion there needs to be a why sure. like I tell the story about starting Quest because I wanted to save my mom and my sister and so people resonate with that. Yeah. And there's there's definitely um That is super powerful and very, very true. But if you don't learn how to run a business, if you're not savvy enough to make something profitable, you're really going to fall by the wayside. And so, yes, you need to go where the heart goes. But at the same time, because I get hit up by people all the time that are like, I want to build this audience. I want to help people. And I'm like, you're coming from a beautiful place. But if you don't fucking understand business, like you're never going to get anywhere. Yeah, I think that's right. So with my books, like I think there are things I could do that would make them sell more copies that it's not that I'm not willing to do because they're marketing. It's more like, I think I could write a simpler, less nuanced book Mm -hmm. in any one of my books, but I don't think that would be intellectually honest, right? Like meaning you find something, you find the way that you write more interesting. It's both interesting, but also uh, like jives with my principles. Like, look, I think, uh, the Secret is the most successful self-help book of all time because it tells people what they want to hear, but it, uh-huh. I think it's utter bullshit, right? Yes. Like, you're just, just manif- like the, you can make <laughs> more money telling people what they want to hear rather than giving them what they need. Right. Just like I'm sure there were all sorts of corners you could have cut with Quest that would have made the company more profitable right. and probably even made the things taste better or sell better, but ultimately been in contradiction with the whole reason you started the company with to begin with. So it's like... I became a writer to, to, to pursue what's interesting to me, to say what I think is true, you know, to popularize the ideas that I think are important. I'm not going to then go do the opposite of that or only 80% of that because uh, I think I can sell more copies that way. Like, I guess it's just about finding a balance, right? It's like, how successful do you want to be? And what are you willing to do? Just like every athlete could probably go like, look, is there a way I could get away with doping? Mm. And is that how I want to win? Yes or no? It's interesting. I feel like there might be a slightly different fundamental question that people have to ask themselves. Okay. Which is, how do I want to feel about myself when I'm by myself? And I I wonder, like, I do not know this man. I've never met him ever in my life. But um, Lance Armstrong. Yeah. 
I'm going to guess from the things that I've seen. And again, I do not fucking know him. And if he wants to come on the show, I'd happily have this conversation. But I have a feeling that like to him pushing the boundaries of what the human body can do, even with exogenous substances like that, that doesn't matter to him. And I'm guessing that he doesn't lose sleep over that, even if people want him to. Yeah. And so when you look at a lot of of either a violation of what most people will say is a problem or a non-violation of what most people will see as a problem has perchance very little impact on how the person actually feels about themselves. And I would say that how you feel about yourself is ultimately the thing that should be driving your decision-making. Yes. You, uh, uh, at the end of the day, you have to sleep in your house. You know what I mean? You have to know, you have to look yourself in the mirror. And Lance is actually a, a really interesting guy. I've gotten to know him in Austin and, and, I think what he's told me, I think this is an interesting way to think about it. It's a lesson I've sort of thought about after he told it to me. He was saying that basically, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but he was saying this sort of, uh, you know, he's always a competitive person. He's always very driven and always very good at what he did. He was one of the best in the world. Mm. And then he gets cancer and all of a sudden uh, now he's in the a fight, right? Or the fight of his life. And in the fight against cancer, like uh, beating cancer was living and losing to cancer was dying, mm. right? And he sort of said it was kind of like a there was a switch that flipped in his brain, or, or it was just wires that crossed where he was like he was perfectly uh, built to beat cancer. But what he walked out from that was maybe a, a, some twisting of the wires, and that and that uh, winning itself was now living, and losing was dying. And so it become it, it's it's like. Uh, you know, water boils at 212 and it doesn't boil at 211. And so like the the tiny degrees of difference can have massive impact Mm. on things. And so I think it's just you want to know, like, who do you want to be? Where do you want to end up? And then realize that as you're making these decisions that don't seem big or small, just how they can end up taking you in radically different directions. And and look, like the whole doping and, and in cycling is such a complicated issue and it doesn't really work well in our sort of outrage, outrage culture to wrap our heads around it. Mm. But I just took, it's like, oh, okay. Like that's something I, I don't want to make that association in my life because like I, I have a, for me, winning is, is not simply like, but for some people winning in as being an author is selling lots of copies. I want to sell copies. I don't want to be the, an obscure author that nobody heard of. Um, because you're not having any impact. I don't want to be a person that uh, everyone says they liked, but don't actually read. I want to be kind of in the <laughs> middle, you know? And and like for me, the goal is like, do, um, do people I respect really get a lot out of the books, mm. right? So like at, at the elitist levels of performance, is the book working and resonating? And what I've just realized, the trade-off to get there is that it doesn't work as well for ordinary people. Like it's still enough that the books have sold quite well. I make a comfortable living. It's been awesome. But it, the question is like, am I am I going to write a book so simple that an NFL coach is like, what can I, I can't do anything with this, right. but I might sell 30% more copies to ordinary people. Not that I have a problem with ordinary people, but do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like deciding who you're doing this thing for is really important because then uh, – just the idea that a number determines success is way too binary and way too simple. So I want to go back to what you're saying about Lance Armstrong. Okay. That shit is so interesting to me. And um, so the the notion that winning itself is life. Yeah. 
So I think a big reason that a lot of people fail is they don't, they're not obsessed, like truly, truly, they're, sure. they're not obsessed about figuring something out. And I'm super curious to see what you think about okay. this because of the, the stoic bent yeah. and like your new book, which are we able to talk about the new book? Of course. Book? No, that's what I'm right. So yeah. stillness is the key, right? Yeah. So the, the notion of being able to tap into stillness, incredibly, incredibly powerful, yeah. but a little bit of Alexander the Great, of the need to conquer, of the need to win, to be yeah. out front, to kill, to like, like do your yeah. thing, man. Like yeah. that, that's sure. how fucking people win, right? Sure. Hannibal, I will yeah. either find a way or make one. Like when you have that level of, of obsession and whether it's, you know, Lance realizing in his battle for cancer that he is just perfectly, and I'm assuming he meant perfectly wired to be cancer because he won't quit. Yeah. He's just got an, an ability to suffer and endure that your average human does not. Mm -hmm. So that to me is fucking interesting. And I really feel like if people cannot cultivate that in their life, they won't be able to play at the level that many of them profess to want to play. Now, I'm not, I'm not obviously not speaking yeah. for everybody. Not everybody right. wants to be at that level, but um, if you want to play. This is, a, this, is, this is a sort of perennial question. Can you be world-class? Can you be best in the world and be anything else? You know what I mean? Does, what do you do think? You, do you, does it have to ruin you as a human being? I won't, I won't take it that far. But do you, no, I don't mean like, do you have to be a monster? But I just mean, can you be singularly focused or can you have a slightly more balanced life? Um, and, What's and, your answer to that? Yeah, yeah. I think I think about it a lot. Uh, one of the stories I tell in Stillness is, is the story of Michael Jordan. Clearly, probably the greatest basketball player of all time, certainly for for you know, uh, a generation, the greatest basketball right. player of all time, done things no one has ever done and probably ever will be able to do again. Um, but when you watch the Michael Jordan Hall of Fame speech <laughs> and you go, ah, this strategy is not without its costs. And and it's not that Michael Jordan uh, was, it, it's what you realize is that his obsession was primarily in, in the way for Armstrong, it's driven by, you know, winning is living. Uh, for Jordan, it was clearly like anger is the fuel that he used to achieve his greatness. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what we do when we do, what we do young people and aspiring people a disservice is we go like, oh, Michael Jordan, successful, angry, you should be angry or whatever it is. What, what we, what's pushed off into the future is the cost of that. And you saw that in that Hall of Fame speech. George Raveling told me, he was like, what happened is he shoved all this stuff in the closet and then the closet blew open in front of the entire world. And it was a wake-up call for him. He said Michael Jordan's much better now having gone through really? that speech. That that was sort of the, the that was a, a, a revealing experience for him in many ways. Mm. That he didn't set out, he didn't, go up there to come off that way. And sometimes you can only do things and see yourself from a distance and go, maybe I don't, that's not who I want to be. So it's not, a, I'm not coming at it from a position of judging. I'm just saying like that anger meant that he couldn't enjoy the crowning achievement of his life. And it was clear that even as he was doing all these things, it was what he was most, that to, to be great, he'd had to make himself like an open wound. And, and I guess what I'm interested in is like, is that necessary? And are there other forms of fuel? And, and I'm not, I'm, you know, Lyndon Johnson once said that like, uh, you got to have that sort of animal instinct, that like killer instinct, but you got to be able to keep it on a leash. Right. And I think, so maybe that's one compromise is just that like, I'm competitive, I want to win, but can I, can I check myself so I'm not just giving myself, I'm, I'm very suspicious of 
giving myself over to anything. And maybe I leave some gains on the table, but I also am head, I'm also preventing catastrophic failure, mm. which so many of these people end up doing. Not That's not the case for Michael Jordan, but we always want to be careful of the survivorship bias. You see Michael Jordan become the most successful basketball player of all time, driven by anger. What about the guy that 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 blew his opportunity in college that you know blew his draft interviews mm. that that uh, I mean there's a there's this guy is a player his name is Induti Eby and he was drafted by the Timberwolves after uh, Kevin Garnett like one of the last high school players and they said uh, look you're really good what we learned with Kevin Garnett is that it takes a little bit of time for a high school player to develop mm. we want to we want to put you in the developmental leagues for a season. And he was like, nope. And so they cut him, you know, like he could, he was like, I, he had that, like, I'm good enough. I can do it right now. You can't teach me anything. Mm. And he plays in Turkey right now. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so, so we, for, we don't hear about guys like that because most of the stories we tell culturally are about when it works out mm. and we lose sight of the, when the obsession turns into the Lance Armstrong situation or turns into Worse than that situation. Uh, this this is what scares me. So I want to, uh, my mission in life maybe is a better way to say it, is to find an access point for the average person to develop greatness in their life. Yes. Okay. So that one requires a definition of what is greatness. And mm -hmm. I will define it. Um, there's, I think, a real temptation for people to say, whatever is greatness for you. And yeah. I will say that that is true of success. I don't think it's true of greatness. Yeah. So okay. success is, hey, how do you define it? And you've talked yeah. a lot about success for me is freedom. I totally buy into that. Yeah. It's a super personal thing. Right. What I want to do, and I used to back a quest, I called it mining for astronauts. I really want to find the next crop of extraordinary human talent. Sure. Now, for sure, I'm deeply distressed by the importance that intelligence plays and all of that. And I don't quite yeah. know where I settle out on that. Okay. Um, I kind of like biologically. Yeah. yeah. So I, I recent science seems to show I was researching this for my upcoming book. Research seems to suggest that 50% is hardwired and 50% is malleability. Okay. okay. So I'm just going to set aside yeah. the hardwired part yeah. for now and say that there, the radical change that you can have in your life with the 50% that is malleable is so extraordinary. Even if all you can do is improve yourself 10 X, whatever that focus on that, right? Like yeah. doing some 10 X thing. But the only way I know how to present all of this to you is through the lens of greatness of yeah. real measurable achievement that we can say we were aiming for this and either we hit it or we didn't mm -hmm. so then i get into the notion of all right obsession and what does obsession look like and how do you begin to balance this stuff and so my theory around obsession is that most of the and i've just always yeah. broken it down 80 20 and was that the Pareto distribution yep. or principle mm -hmm. or whatever so that's it's probably largely bullshit but that gets you at yeah. least in the neighborhood of reality yeah and for me in my life, the thing that I have found is 80% of my energies can come from something beautiful. The thing that I'm trying to accomplish, the people that I want to help, what I want to build, what I want to create, yeah. my own self-improvement, all of that. But there, there's 20% of the time where I'm just too fucking tired. Yeah. And I just want to stop. I want to be lazy. I want to give in to sort of base vice instincts, yeah. all of that. And in those moments when I'm bone tired, yeah. The only thing that gets me out is the rage to win. 
And in those moments, it is a dark energy. It's yeah. an ugly energy, but it is so fucking effective. And looking at science, and I really need to look this up because I've been I've been bullshitting this statistic forever. I have no idea what the real answer, but it's something yeah. like 30%. So they they take people to get a baseline for pain tolerance. Yeah. They have you submerge your arm in ice. You leave it in for as long as you can. People pull it out. They get a baseline. Then they take another group of people and they have them submerge their arm. And they say, hey, right at the second where you want to pull it out, I want you to get really angry, yell, scream, cuss, do whatever you need to. But just see if you can leave it in longer. And they do. And they find that people that that put themselves in that aggressive, angry state are able to leave it in something like 30% longer. And that feels so true to me, to what I know about the human condition, that in in like i keep a list yeah and it's the list of all the people that told me i would never succeed that or or more importantly the people that actively want me to fail uh-huh and they've made themselves known in various ways yeah. for my life and when it when i'm really really tired and i've run out of all the like i want to do something awesome for yeah. the world i want to help my wife i yeah. want to feel some kind sure. of way and that all peters out and i don't have the energy anymore the thing that keeps me in the game is imagining that person celebrating my defeat and that gives me new energy. And so there, the, the need to balance seems painfully obvious. Like if you allow yourself to steep in the anger and the rage too much, you begin to hardwire for yeah. it. It becomes the easiest emotion for you to feel. It is an ugly emotion. It is not fun to stay there for long periods of time, but it's incredibly fucking useful. And so like when I think about no bullshit really teaching people, like you said, I want to give something to people that is real. And when I think about that, if you don't master the 20%, yeah. in addition to the 80%, you won't achieve greatness. You might achieve success, but you won't achieve greatness. Well, I think it's interesting even to say that success and greatness are not, not necessary. You can have one and not the other. You, ideally, you want both. I think that's important and should be liberating for people. I guess what I'd say I have a lot of thoughts. So, so one to me, one of the most beautiful passages, and I think the most uh, haunting to me in in meditations by Marcus Aurelius is he goes, he's like, run down the list of the angriest, the most driven, the most ambitious, you know, the the most I have something to prove to the world people of history. And he goes like, where are they now? He was like dust or legend or not even legend. And it, it, what he's trying to remind himself is that as powerful as a tool as it may be, ultimately, uh, where does it end up? It ends up where we all end up. You know, he says, Alexander the Great and his mule driver are buried in the same ground, <laughs> right? Like, uh, that's not to say one that you should be the mule driver and not Alexander the Great. It's just the point is like, at the end, we all become equal, right? That's the, that stoic idea of memento mori. I wear it in a ring on my finger. Mm. It, it, it's like, I want to be tangibly reminded all the time that, um, separate from what gets you to success, success or greatness is ultimately ephemeral. The most impact you can have, like uh, not far from me in Austin, there's this national park, dinosaur national monument. You can stand in a footprint left by a dinosaur 110 million years ago in a riverbed. It's crazy. Dinosaur doesn't care. It's fucking dead. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean anything. Like, like doesn't matter what you build here, how important, how many people you touch, that dinosaur left a greater legacy than you will leave over a long enough time span, right. right? 110 million years, it's tangible, it's right there in the ground. But in the end, most of us won't even leave that, right? So there's a, I think what, what he's trying to say there is just adding some humility here, right? And then I think that goes to the point of 
if if you're relying on anger to get you over the hump to do something, if you're just in the way that you're relying on adrenaline to lift a car off of a person who's stuck, great. Not good to live your life in an adrenaline-fueled way because eventually your adrenal glands fail and then you have no ability to do that, right? And so the the as as a as an oomph as like an extra booster i get it and probably use it myself mm. i think the problem is people tell themselves that's how they're doing it but they're not like like um the problem with the the hey i'm driven by proving these people wrong strategy or the it is it or or i'm going to shove this in their faces or or i'm going to get even with them is that what i tend to find happens is so you get there you did uh, I, let's say I became an author to, to, to prove to my mom and dad that they, they underestimated me. Well, you get there and then you don't feel what you expected to feel. <laughs> you don't feel good, right? Mm. And then so instead of going like, okay, I'm going to not do that anymore, you go, your, your mind, without even you even knowing, begins inventing new grudges. Mm. So it's like if, if the point is the adrenal rush to lift the car off, that's a, a one-off thing, right? I totally buy into that and agree. I think the pro, I think what we have to be careful of is how insidious anger is. Anger is like ego. It's like its main thing is self-preservation. Like mm-hmm. anger, anger is not in the business of forgiveness or in letting go. Anger is in the business of anger. And so you let it in and now it's like, but what about that other guy was laughing too, <laughs> you know? And so it never ends. Right. Yeah, that... So I I totally buy into that. And for me, it it is one of the most dangerous things that you can do. And I actually think about my moral obligation to um, the people that I'm trying to help. Do I have a moral obligation to lead them down a path that isn't dangerous? Yeah. Or do I have a moral obligation to lead them down a path that's effective? Yes. And I, for sure, lean on the side of effectiveness. So I'll ultimately judge myself by my ability to take them down a path of effectiveness. But here's what I struggle with. Some people are going to get it. So I always call out like, oh, this is advanced class shit because I know that people are really going to struggle. Like, hey, two computers ideas you're gonna have to hold them in your head at the same time and it gets Mm -hmm. super weird and to know when to lean on one and not the other and then experience has taught me that people then oversimplify your message they cling on to one thing and so i'm like fuck man when i say something's advanced class it's usually because it's dangerous and that if you play with this this is to use a just brutally cliche thing this is like playing with fire right like the, the chances of you cooking your meat versus getting burned it's like i have no idea what you're gonna do with it and fire is almost like too conservative. It's like you're playing with jet fuel. Right. There's a chance it just blows you up, right? <laughs> like it's it's or 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 nitroglycerin. Like it's it's very fragile. Mm-hmm. And I totally get I totally get that dilemma because look, my first book is a book about media manipulation. Like the intention of the book is to say don't do this mm-hmm. uh, or this is bad. But at the same time, I'm also saying this is how it works, right? <laughs> and so you at the end of the day, like you can't you can't control what people do with the message. You can only deliver the message. And do, and this goes to what we're saying. You can only, you might, act, the message might reach more people if you didn't put the caveats, if you mm-hmm. didn't put the warnings, if you, if you just told people what they wanted to hear, which is an excuse for anger. But you got to sit with yourself at night and you got to have your own standards. And so ultimately, you, you have to know that you put it out there in a way that you felt was right at the time you put it out. And then what people do with it Ultimately, these are consenting, responsible adults. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one certainly hopes that they are (laughs) consenting, responsible adults. Um, 
yeah, that that to me is really interesting. What's something that has surprised you? So you do the Daily Stoic, which yeah. is really interesting, and I love them. Thank you. Um, what is? I wondered if people respond to ones you don't expect them to respond to, or if you get nervous at all about which ones end up being really popular. So the the Memento Mori thing has been like of an unexpected vein because. Uh, for myself too. Explain uh, to people what that is. So memento mori is is this idea. It just means remember death or remember your immortality. And I think it's probably it's it's not only one of the most powerful themes in all of ancient philosophy, specifically Stoicism, but in basically all of ancient art as well. Like the most beautiful painting painters used to paint pictures of skulls and dancing skeletons and and or, or decaying bodies and and. And so this imagery of the the inevitable decay, the entropy of life, is this timeless theme that basically goes all the way up to modern art, and then it's just like weird ass shapes and stuff. <laughs> we like so we stopped using art as a tool to remind us of human primal things and started mm-hmm. using it as a status symbol. You know what I mean? And and so what the Stoics are so much of meditations and. Uh, and and Seneca's writing is is just talking about how easy it is to rem- to forget that you'll die or to have the wrong attitude about die like death. One of my favorite things from Seneca, he goes like, "Do not think that you're moving towards death." He was like, "Every second that passes is death." So don't think about it as like, "Oh, I'm dying in the future and I should be prepared for that." Think about the fact that we're dying every day. Um, that you're just, why is that better? It, it's just a reminder. It's not like death is this thing in the future. So I'm going to dick around today. It's right. that like the that hour that I spent forever. on the couch, I died one hour of my death. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and the, his point is that so many people think that there's life and death, but there are ways of living that are essentially a form of being dead. Mm. And that this is in fact how most people die. Uh, or most people live. Uh, there's this, um, sort of haunting, messed up uh, story in Seneca. One of the emperors is sort of like walking down this row of, of, you know, condemned prisoners and the prisoner is pleading for his life. Please don't kill me. And the emperor looks at him and he thinks, and he's like, you think you're alive? You know, because this man's horrible way of living was already death, you know? And, and so that just, I think it so resonates with people um, because it's so the opposite of, of, of how modern life is set up. Uh, people die in hospitals far from mm-hmm. our house. Uh, who spends time with old people? We are so segregated even by age, right? Um, there's been so many medical advancements that death doesn't feel random. It feels like it's something your fault. That, like if you eat healthy and you're a good person, obviously you'll live a long time. And on average you will, but that doesn't mean that uh, non-smokers don't get lung cancer all the fucking time. And you can't be one of those people. That doesn't mean that people uh, don't get hit with tree branches, you know, and die. Or uh, that doesn't mean that countries don't go to war for no reason. And lots of people, you know, like life is tragic and it always has been for all of human history. And so that's that's definitely, I think, the most powerful one. And it's something I, I mean, I keep on my desk. I mean, so I wear this ring. It's like a reminder. But I have, uh, I bought it on 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 uh, online. It's uh, a chunk of a tombstone. And it ju- like from some, I don't know how this came to be. I, I hope nobody stole it. But it's from like an old Victorian grave. So a couple oh. hundred years old. And it just, uh, it it just has the word dad on it. 
You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is off Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. 
And it so that's so fucking interesting. Yeah. Like I want to start asking people what is some weird shit that they have yeah. that that is so interesting, especially knowing your views on death and being a dad recently. Yeah. And, and so it's like, look, crazy. I'm, this guy was a father. Did you seek out the word dad? I was looking for something like that. And when I found it and I was like, that's that's it. That's the reminder that I want to have all the time. Fuck. That one really hit me. I'm not sure why. Yeah. The the word dad that it's an actual tombstone. Because I'm it's a, a because father, you, what you're thinking about is what that person meant to yes, other people. Yes, yes. And and that this is something clearly people identify he, he that was part of his identity and he's not here. And not only is he not here, I don't even fucking know his name. Right. Nobody does. Not only does nobody know his name, but at some point after his death even the ground he was buried in, like, suffered an earthquake or right. <laughs> somebody stole it. Like, so it's just, there's a humility in that. And I think a reminder to be present, right? Like, um, so when my, let's say I'm working at my desk and I'm writing and my son, he's almost three, he comes running and he's like, dad, dad, look at this. <laughs> you know, it, that's like a, I'm going to get this writing done because I'm important or it's important to me. But I am not going to ignore this thing. Mm. Uh, I'm going to. I'm not saying I'm going to quit my work and not focus on it at all. But I am not going to ignore this moment to be this thing that's important to me. Do you know what I mean? I do. I think that gets. Uh, I, I want to derail <laughs> yeah. on that, but first I want to address like the the notion of death. Memento. Do yeah. not let me forget okay. to come back to your son coming okay. in because yeah. that, that's actually yeah. really fucking. And we interesting, talked about but, that before. Yeah, yeah, but I, I want to talk about, um, so I I have an evolving sense of what my relationship to death should be. So for a very long time, um, it was patently obvious to me that I was going to die, but yeah. that we're living in a period where it is conceivable that we'll be able to hit escape velocity from a health perspective and that by the time we're 80, 90, if we're able to live that long, that they can add a year and a day to every yeah. year that we live or yeah. whatever. So or you just live a lot longer than humans have conceived of life as being. Correct. So I thought, okay, that's interesting to me because um, I want to live my life in such a way where my limited amount of time does not impact the size of my dreams. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a denial of death. It was just kind of a cool escape valve for me to, even as I got older, to continue to have big dreams that, you know, sort of by any stretch of the imagination would probably go on beyond me. But because tomorrow was never guaranteed anyway, even yeah. when I was 16, yeah. that there's only that the the sort of false or maybe a better way to think of it is um, from a, an actuarial table standpoint, you're probably going to live long enough for you to have that 40 year dream or yeah. that six year dream or whatever. So because of that, you just, you do, you have yeah. these long ranging dreams. And I felt like because I had long ranging dreams, I was able to do some pretty extraordinary of things, course, but only because I was thinking so long-term. So, okay, as I get older, I don't want to stop having these long-term dreams. Yeah. So I really allowed myself to soak in the notion of, hey, you might live forever. So keep having these big long range yeah. dreams. Now, hearing enough people talk about Memento Mori or whatever, I started thinking, all right, people that I really respect are telling me that I need to really think closely about the notion of dying. Yeah. So I thought, okay, let me really stop and inspect how that would impact me, what does that change in terms of the way that I live or um, how I perceive life or whatever. And so far, I will say, because I'm already like, it is 
It is at the absolute core of my being to only do things that matter, to love deeply, to connect to the people that I love, to not waste time, all that. Like I don't, yeah. I personally don't need that reminder. Yeah. Many people do. And, and it's very useful sure. for that. That isn't the reminder that I need. I find that it's actually, it, it feels important to acknowledge the inevitability currently of my death. But at the same time, I find that now I have to fight harder to have long range plans. And I don't like the way that feels. So I, it is, it's, it's seemingly there's a contradiction between being present and doing or planning big things, but I'm not sure that there is, I don't know exactly how to solve for it, but let's look at the evidence, right? Marcus Aurelius, here's a guy, he's reminding himself of how ephemeral the emperors who came before him were. He's reminding himself of the inevitability of death. Uh, he's saying over and over again the importance of being present, not being driven by anger. We can't say like that it that this guy didn't accomplish incredible things, right? Like that he that because of that he just stayed in bed all day. I think what he's saying is like let's do the right thing for the right reason. You look at Seneca, same thing, talking over and over again about the death, about the import, uh, the, the inevitability of death, the meaninglessness of uh posthumous fame, etc. And yet still sits down and writes these essays that continue to be read by millions of people 2,000 plus years after his death. I think what it's about is about stripping out the, the low-grade anxiety or denial or whatever we have and, and being able to focus everything in that, that moment. So when, when Seneca is saying like, you will die, today could be the last day of your life, he's not saying quit what you're doing and go have an orgy or go shoot up heroin just to see what it's like. He's saying, live today like a complete day. So like what, as I worked on Stillness is the Key, it was something I was thinking about a lot. I was like, okay, I could die before this book gets published. What happens to me? It, does someone finish it? Does it get published? Whatever. Does it sit in a drawer? None of that's really my concern. What? Nor is it in my control, right? Even if I write in a will exactly. Nabokov, I, I think, wrote very clearly like, destroy my manuscripts after my death. Really? Yeah. And, and lots of authors have done this. And nobody listened. You know, <laughs> Kafka, same thing. We only know about these works because they're, they, they would be upset that we know who they are. Right. So what do I control? What I do control is, did I do everything I could today? Right? Did I leave, like, is the book complete as of today? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it as complete up until the point I was able to complete it? Mm. So I go, you know, the first two thirds are the book that it could be as of today. That's what I do. Does that make sense? It does, but I don't know that it hits me emotionally. So sure. um, let's try to unpack that a little bit. So if you're saying like, hey, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to be present, which we actually didn't address and I don't think is a self-evident realization when one thinks about their death, uh, which would be interesting to hear your thoughts around why that is your association. Um, I I begin to, to think about... Um, so if I were writing a book, first of all, I'm such a process writer that I would be the, the type that's like, bury the fucking manuscript, yeah, like, don't yeah, ever let it out. Yeah. People would have no, like they yeah. just wouldn't believe how scandalously bad my early drafts of sure. anything are. Um, so I, I wouldn't think of it in any other way than the following. Did I sincerely pursue making this great today? Yes or no? That's what that, I totally agree with. That's what it's about. He's, okay. he's saying like live every day as a complete day. 
And then when you wake up tomorrow, you're grateful because you get a second day. It's like you don't walk up to the plate and swing at those pitches and go, oh, I'll get it next time. You go like, this is this is game seven. <laughs> you know, you know this so is fucking interesting. So uh, I so I I still struggle with anxiety, but my anxiety used to be debilitating. Yeah. And one of the things that got me out of that was to say there's no such thing as performance. There's only practice. Yeah. So literally the exact opposite of what you're saying right now. There is no game seven. Even if it was game seven, I would have to tell myself, hey, this is just practice. And if you fuck this up, no worries. You're going to learn something from this. Here is, I think that this is like a life changing assumption that I came to about philosophy. Um, I'm not, I don't sure, not sure exactly where I came to it, but it it cracked open a whole thing for me. Um, And maybe it was in the 48 laws of power. People go like, but the laws contradict each other. Different situations call for different perspectives, right? right? They're not, life is fucking complicated. Life is a paradox, right? And so I think what you you go is like, sometimes you need to be told, uh, this moment is game seven. And sometimes you go, it's not even, uh, none of this even matters. You you go back and forth, right? This is so important, yes. And and also let's think about what philosophy actually is. Because now we have these pretentious academics who are like, this is the theory of the universe, you know? What, what Epictetus or Seneca or Marcus Aurelius is doing is answering questions in the way that like, if I looked at all the Q and A's you've done, I'd be like, Tom, half your answers contradict <laughs> each other. That's because you're talking to Steve and over here you're talking to Susan. And, and then maybe if you were talking to Susan three weeks later, you give a totally different answer because it was a different question or because she's changed, right? Like different things required. So if you're curing anxiety, how can we zoom out and get a different perspective? If you're wasting time or you're, if like, if you're dwelling in the past, then we want to do, you just do it differently to get the different perspectives that give you the tools to be able to move forward. And ultimately what, and I'm not trying to do this to plug my book, ultimately what we're trying to do is get to a place of stillness and clarity and focus so we can be a hundred percent locked in, in whatever we're doing. Mm. So, um, that's what this is all about. And, and sometimes you're flashing forward. Sometimes you're looking to history for perspective. Sometimes you're emptying your mind entirely. It's, it's just like every situation's got different handles and you, you grab onto the right one at the right time. So, wow. You just put words to something that I think is so incredibly important. And are you able to define perspective? Because to me, this is, so the book that I'm writing is essentially about how to craft. I, and I don't like the word perspective, even though it's probably the closest thing, Okay, but the ability to craft a perspective, the ability to at will change your mm-hmm. perspective is critically important. And I think that perspective is the very thing that holds people back. Um, my realization that the people in the inner cities that were working for me at Quest, that they had a bad perspective that was going to blunt their ability to have uh, an extraordinary life. Yeah. That realization is why impact theory exists. So yeah. like that whole notion of perspective being this incredibly meaningful thing um, is, is at the center of my philosophy and my drive and all that. Are you able to define what a perspective is? Um, there's a German word, uh, umwelt, and it basically means like a dog has a different umwelt than a human. And I would argue that a, a champion at this sport versus a, you know, a, a, an egotistical loser who won't get off their couch, they have different umwelts, they have different experiences of reality and the ability to control that or to, 
to it's like you know you're cranking the thing on the binoculars uh th that's what you want to be able to cultivate and when you look at what uh the stoics are doing it's sometimes they're zooming way in and going like just look at the thing immediately in front of you don't extrapolate out to the whole that's what's intimidating you and then other times they're like look at the world from above and how puny even the roman empire is mm. compared to other things and they're in some cases in the same same moment doing both of those and it's just like it's just realizing that um how we look at the world is the, the world is objective but how we look at it determines what we're going to be able to do to it epictetus says it's not things that upset us it's our opinions about things right and so realizing like oh okay the world is objective my opinion is what determines everything and by opinion he means judgments right the other he says it's not things that upset us it's our judgment about things so it's really judge maybe judgments a better word than perspective uh well let's go back to the notion of so i've heard it pronounced umwelt i don't know which is uh, right umwelt umwelt whatever yeah um so to define at least, and I don't know if this is the official Merriam-Webster definition, yeah. but um, a big part of the need to define an umwelt or, or to have a word for it is um, take uh, birds or fish, right? They they actually perceive data from the world differently. So sure. a shark can detect electrical signals and you can actually fool a shark into thinking that a metal plate is a flopping fish because you just have the plate emanate an electrical sure. signal sure, sure. and it, it can't help but interpret it that way. But we we would not notice anything so we not don't know that idea. but like isn't it interesting that we just assume sharks are looking and smelling right that's how we exactly. looking smelling and hearing we just go everyone must be perceiving those senses it's not we don't even we can't even think about how a bat perceives reality driven by radar right yes 100 yeah. percent. and so um i think something that drives my very understanding of the world all of my philosophies everything that i teach is all about we are humans experiencing life through a biological system and that biological system has its own umwelt it yeah. has limitations we see only a certain spectrum of light we hear only a certain spectrum of sound like yes. we can't experience wi-fi signals like there yeah. there or maybe we do but on a cellular level and so we have no conscious awareness sure. of it so it's like really getting down to okay if you know that your umwelt is limited and you know that you're confined in this world and that your brain actually has a region of it that says not just what is happening, but how you feel about what is happening, the deep limbic system, right? Your yeah. brain actually processes things through the lens of, is this good or bad, right? That, yes. that you can knock out that part of the brain and cause people massive problems because yeah. once they don't have an emotion about it, they can't even decide what they want for lunch. Sure, Fucking sure. crazy. So wrapping your head around okay i i am this i love the notion of the elephant and the writer yeah okay so who is the writer i'm not even going to talk about yeah. that right now i'm just going to say you're a writer your elephant is the biological system and once you understand what motivates that elephant to move to rage to run to hunger sex sleep whatever then you can begin to control it more effortlessly and whether that's to pursue stillness yeah. and um or whether that is just understanding your own motivations and desires i think is incredible important where i get freaked out is that people have no sense of the elephant they have no sense that the elephant is controlled by its umwelt they have no sense that like okay you you do have a limited number of inputs coming in in a limited number of ways but even within that there's so much degree of like interpretation that you can take control of that you can begin to decide how you see your world and once you decide how you're going to see the world it will hardwire over time if you obsessively focus on that so that you get a neurochemical response, 
humans move away from pain, they move towards pleasure. So now you're changing what gives you pleasure. You're mm -hmm. choosing or changing what gives you pain. And so you're able to steer the elephant. You made a face that says you're not sure you believe that. No, no, no. I'm just thinking, yes. Okay. So yeah. that to me, like once you understand that, then it's like, okay, you can begin to control Wrong word. You can begin to navigate more intelligently your way through life because you have some end goal. Yes. You begin to hardwire pleasure and pain in a way that is going to move you towards that. Now, I don't sure. think you have complete freedom over what you can hardwire. Right. But there's going back to that 50-50, there's a massive amount that you can sure. manipulate in that to go in a direction that makes sense based on your goals. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And look, I, I think an interesting thing you realize uh, when you have kids is you go like, Oh, this kid is acting this way because he's really tired mm. and that it that how he's acting in this situation is not a reflection of him it's a reflection of environmental habit things like that like we didn't give he didn't go down for his nap that's why he's yelling uh he's upset he says that it's because he wants his toy really he wants to eat but he doesn't <laughs> know that that's what he wants and then having the humility to go like we're all not only are we all basically just big children, but most of us have an inner child inside of us that, you know, is responding to some childhood trauma that we have that, that is motivating and steering a lot. Of, like you're attracted to this person because they remind you of this other person or you repeat this pattern where you end up frustrated or upset or, you know, um, in pain because that's a trauma that, that's familiar to you and you're just enacting. And so realizing that we're sort of pulled by these forces uh, lets you, I think, or hopefully go, oh, I'm not mad. I'm tired. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. or, or go, this is, I think this is what would make the world a better place. Go, this person who I don't know, who's rude to me in the supermarket is not a bad person. They're just responding to one of these forces, right? And this also, I think, allows us to be more forgiving of people who are in jail, people who have failed, people who are not successful. You go, oh, all these things are contributing, but you have the ability, just like a, you can bring a shelter dog. We go, oh, you can't turn, a, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You can't teach your old dog new tricks. <laughs> but if you got a dog from a shelter, you could teach it to sit very quickly. Do you know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. it's like fresh for both of you. And the environment has changed and the situation has changed. And, and that like, it's just silly to write other people off or to write yourself off or uh, to do what do they call it? The attribution fallacy where, where we attribute because of one piece of behavior or one flash observance, we attribute uh, an entire understanding about who that person is or what they're capable of because we saw them yell at someone or we saw them be nice to someone mm. and we don't realize that actually they're a serial killer. Do you know what right. I mean? Like it's, <laughs> it's all very complicated. That escalated quickly. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I want to go back to what you just said. The super interesting you and I think this is very true. The problem isn't that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. The problem is you can't teach your old dog new tricks. And I assume in that analogy, you're saying like it might be hard for you to change your own mind. But if you could step outside or have somebody come in from the outside, you could even be very easily retrained. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. That's why word, but. that's why when people undergo a trauma or they find out they have cancer or they move to a new city, suddenly a whole bunch of things that weren't possible before become possible. Or I think this also explains why momentum uh, is so valuable because mm. it's changing 
suddenly you think you're capable of something that you're no more or less capable of before, but now you've earned a little confidence or you see yourself differently and then suddenly everything changes. That's really interesting. Uh, go down that path because I think that um, what you're calling momentum, what I think most people would refer to in that scenario as confidence, yeah. is one of the most important things for people in business, probably in life, but I always think about it in the business context for them to be able to create that momentum. One, how do you create that momentum? Why does it matter so much? Well, so I just hear from lots of people who want to write books, right? There'll be someone they're like, Hey, I'm, you know, a super successful CEO of X, or, you know, I've done this for like, I've been a professional athlete the last, the next 10 years, the last 10 years. And I want to become, you know, a motivational speaker or something. And they go like, help me make a book. And I go like, why are you starting with the hardest <laughs> thing? Like, write one tweet, you know, or one <laughs> article, like, you know what I mean? Do one, like it, the idea that you should just for fast forward all the way to the end without building the process to get there. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that's what momentum is. Uh, that, that's the, the, what you will write a better book if you've gotten reps earlier in the thing. And, and, but people just want the outcome. They don't want the process. And so, I, I think, you know, it's like if you were trying to lose weight, people are like, I got to change everything. And it's probably like uh, James Clear talks about this in Atomic Habit. Like, what's the smallest unit of change mm. that you can make um, because you can build on that? And, and, and in writing, we say something similar where it's like you can edit crappy pages and turn them into good pages. You cannot edit pages that don't exist, <laughs> you know, like uh, yeah. and, and so uh, but people are paralyzed by the idea of having something perfect um, or something that lives up to their standards. And so they don't start. Yeah. Seth Godin talks about like people always come to him and say, Oh, I'm a terrible writer. I can yeah. never do that. And he's like, awesome. Let me see your terrible pages. Right. And he was like, they never have any. And yes. he was like, they have this belief that they're not good, but they're not even putting in the work to actually get better and improve. Yes. Which going back to that whole notion of perspective, your perspective is going to determine what you pursue. So it's what I call the only belief that matters. The only belief that matters is that you think you can actually get better, that you yes. think by putting in the energy and the effort that will be rewarded with an improvement in your skill set. Yeah. Just, uh, I, what I say is, um, uh, if you don't believe you can do something, you almost certainly cannot do it. But just because you believe you can do something doesn't mean you can do it, right? <laughs> and so when Churchill is saying that, um, you know, uh, perfection can be spelled paralysis with, with the word paralysis, I think he's not saying that you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't try to be really, really, really good. Mm. So like it's a very subtle uh, perspective shift. It's like, oh, no, I'm approaching perfection, but I understand that perfection is impossible. Right. So then you're like, oh, I'm getting better that now progress is possible. Mm. But if you're like, my end goal is to be perfect. You've essentially it's it's a tricky thing because what you're really doing is giving yourself an excuse not to start because, you know, the thing is impossible. Right. Like it, it you can lose weight. You cannot get taller. Right? right. So if you go, my goal is to grow a foot this year. And then if I checked in with you a year later, I'd be like, what'd you do? You'd be like nothing because it's not possible. But if I said Hey, you know, your, your goal is to lose 20 pounds. There's at least things you can do to get there. Well, here's the good news. You actually could get a foot taller. You know about the bone breaking techniques that they use on no. people that have dwarfism and stuff. No, you didn't know about this. No. This is fucking crazy, man. So th this comes down to why I always like, I tell people, look, human potential is nearly limitless. Now yeah. I used to say it's limitless. Yeah. 
but people just Again, start pushing very back subtle on perspective shit. dumb yeah. shit, right? Yeah. Well, you want to talk perspective. Yeah. Like if your perspective is such that you're going to waste your time pushing back on somebody who's saying that right. things are, you know, yes. that human potential is limited. It's like, come on now. Yeah. So act as if. But my thing is the the very reason that I I know that the the law of averages says that some massive percentage is it 20 is it 30% they legitimately fall below what I'll call minimum requirements they're not going to be able to make change in their life yeah. and it's i think the us military won't um it's like 40% bring somebody of the male population it's, it's like a disgusting they, amount they yes. won't bring on people that have lower than 83 iq oh i was just going to say uh, that that is a more loaded my, my, i was responding to like the mil, like 50% of the population does not even qualify to be in the military. Is it really it, that it's, high? Not, it's 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 somewhat intelligent. It's a very large number, but it's like just being overweight. Like right. they won't take you if you weigh over a certain amount. And you're like, the job that was supposed to be, and I'm not saying the military is the lowest, but the that's the, the, the military was supposed to be the level up. ultimate equality of of opportunity. Right. Like they're like, we'll take anyone and turn them into excellence. Mm. And then they're like, but these people haven't even gotten to zero. You wow. know what I mean? They're at like negative fifty. And you've got to get to zero for us to work our magic. Wow. That's really I didn't wrong. realize that they had weight requirements. Yeah, you can't, like, you couldn't just enlist in the Marines if you weigh 500 pounds. Actually, I did sort of vaguely know that, but I thought that was for more elite. Do you know David Goggins? Yeah. So they told him, hey, you have to lose 100 pounds yeah. or whatever in, in like four weeks or some yeah. absurd amount yeah. of time. And the fact that he does it is just right. insanity. Yeah. Um, so going back, so I used to tell people that, um, you know, your human potential is limitless and yes. people would push back on the dumbest shit. And the reason that I would say that is I'm, I was so worried that people would assume they fell into like, oh, what I want to do is the thing that can't be done or yeah. whatever. And my thing is, look, if you act as if anything can be done, you're actually better off, even though I know it's yeah. not true. Yeah, like yeah, that sure. is definitively a lie. Sure. But if you act as if it were true, you're much less likely to make the mistake of not trying something that actually is possible. So I'll give a quick example. Um, the bone breaking. Yeah. So you can go in and if you break the bone and then separate it like a centimeter, some very yeah. small increment, the bone will actually grow back together. Yeah. Then you break it again. Yeah. It grows back together and again and again and again. And people that have dwarfism, they can actually, I mean, it's. I don't know what the upper limit yeah. is, but let's say it's it's got to be close to a foot. It's pretty crazy. Okay. Someone just did an AMA on Reddit about, hey, I just grew a foot in the yeah. last whatever two years or something doing that technique. So it's fucking crazy. The number of things that you can do that people just assume you can't. There was another yes. one. I had this guy on. Oh, can I remember his name? He was on Impact Theory. Oh. Um, neuroscientist. I'm blanking on his name right now. I'm so sad. He was so cool. Israeli guy. Yeah. Really interesting. And he was um, doing some studying and he basically did a sort of this, a technique of brain scanning that if you sort of carried it out to his logical conclusion, like it could record dreams. And yeah. so somebody, he publishes a paper on it. Somebody calls him in the middle of the night and says, so are you saying that you can record dreams? And he is like half asleep. He's fucking yeah. exhausted. And he ends up saying, well, yeah, I guess you could. And then the next day, the headline reads, neuroscientist says that you can record dreams. Yeah. And he's, he panics and he's like, I'm going to get kicked out of academia. Like everyone's yeah. going to realize I'm a quack fuck. And he's trying to rescind it and it, it just won't go away. And for a year, it just runs out of control. And people are saying that, oh my God, this is possible. And he's trying to retract it. Nobody will let him retract it. And he has all this anxiety about it. And he's really freaking out that it's going to end his career. 
And then finally it dies down and, yeah. and he just sort of closes the door on it. And then like a year later, this Japanese researcher publishes a paper about how they recorded dreams. <laughs> and he was like, what the hell? And the, the guy says, oh, because of you saying that you were already doing it, I just assumed that it could be done. And so I started doing sure. it. And so he says that the ultimate lesson he took away was not to say something is possible when you believe it's not possible. He said the lesson I learned was not to say something is impossible yeah. before you really go out and prove that it can't be done. Look, I don't, and it's so interesting because people think because of my stuff in stoicism that I'm like somewhat pessimistic or resigned or like the Stoics are very clear on this too. I mean, one of my favorite passages in Marcus Aurelius, he goes, if it's humanly possible, assume you can do it also. So it's the same thing. It's just um, being realistic doesn't mean you're being pessimistic necessarily. It mm. tends to be that way for a lot of people, but um if if you have a good sense of what is actually literally possible um, or or you've studied history enough to see just the magnificent things human beings are capable of doing and, and how regularly they disprove our assumptions about things, you do have a you, you don't go around thinking like, oh, I'm I have very little agency. <laughs> you know what I mean? You actually have the sense that like actually you can sort of change the world or or or, you know, change yourself at any moment. And what do you think that process looks like? Like how malleable do you think we really are? Like I think we can change our values, change the wiring of our brain and change the neurochemical response we have. I laid that out earlier. Yeah. Like how far do you think that we can go with this? I mean, I would maybe I'd push back on with what you're saying is like, why don't we just assume we can go an unlimited amount? Do you know what I mean? Like people, I, I think people spend a lot of time trying to like disprove like whether self-help works or, mm. you know, it's like, is it hurting, you know, or, or whatever. I, I think people, people like, I'll give you an example and then you mentioned it briefly, but like people are like, oh, let's see how inheritable intelligence is or certain races you know, smarter than other races. And I get from an academic perspective, uh, I'm, a, I'm a free speech guy. So I'm like, you should pursue anything you want. The scientific method should take you where it takes you. You should be responsible with all things. But like, I don't think really anything should be off limits uh, in terms of like what we study. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, 
all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Theodore Roosevelt, this great line, someone was talking about how men were smarter than women or something. And he was like, even if that's true, do you know how many men I meet that are much smarter than other men? Do you know what I mean? He's like, right. no, there, there's, uh, you know, what's the IQ difference between us? It doesn't fucking matter. What ma- it, it doesn't, there, how many people have you hired that, that were not bright, but they wanted the job 500 times more than the person right. who was five points smarter than them. So, it, and these things, it, they matter at such they they really only ma- they they really only become statistically significant at massive scale mm-hmm. so even like even if you're hiring at the scale of the US military or hiring at the scale of Google IQ points matter so fucking little and and what are you going to do uh, ultimately what are you going to do with this information and so it like i get you think about it because you're you're teaching people these things, but I, I sometimes people go like, you know, is, are, are these skills, uh, taught or, or, or are they natural? And I go, I don't fucking know. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, I'm, I'm going to work under the assumption that I can get better at them because observably in my own life, I've gotten better at them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And that's enough. Yeah. It's, uh, this, this is the, the, like the pulsating energetic core of my, what I want to do in the world. And it all comes from what you just said, which is people look at me, the after photo and assume that this was obvious when I was young and it was not right. And nothing about where I've ended up was apparent to my mother, to my best friend, to my father-in-law, like no, nobody. Right expected that this is what I was going to do. My best friend in high school recently told me, oh yeah, I just assumed you were going to marshmallow your way through life. That is a direct quote. That was my best friend, somebody who loved and cared about me and wanted me to succeed. But just based on everything he knew about me, that just wasn't the path that I was on. And so my life has changed so radically. And I feel like, whoa, there were a few key moments, a few key people that I met that gave me a few key pieces of information. And that ended up impacting the course of my entire life. And so out of, out of excitement more than anything else, quite frankly, I want to give those same moments to other people and see the direction that their life goes. And I look, I get it. Not everybody's going to do something with it, but I so believe in the core, like ability to grow. No, I think we're saying the same thing. I'm, I'm pushing back. Like people go like, uh, I've been reading this paper and I think we live in a computer simulation. Right. And it's like, cool. What the fuck are you going to do with this information? You still have to do what you're ever going to do today. Right. And so I think people can get obsessed with like, uh, you know, they'll, they'll 
they're actually doing the opposite. You're looking at these studies to find what is possible and to find hope and to find room for improvement, to almost to explain the own, your own anomalous success, right? So you can sprinkle that. Obama used this phrase. He said, successful people need to, to, to not feel like they did it entirely on their own, but that was part of a, a larger thing. And then they need to find ways to sprinkle that stardust on other people. That's what you're doing. That's wonderful. I think some people... Uh, maybe because they're either supporters of big sort of big government, very patronizing government, or because they're, uh, you know, pessimists or nihilists. They want to look to this information and use it as an excuse for, uh, for reducing human agency, for telling people that the game is rigged, for telling them that it doesn't matter how hard you try. You know what I mean? Like they're using it as a way to limit potential. I'm so aggressively in the opposite direction. So to answer your earlier question about like why I look at this or what does it matter? I have so much fear that people turn off an empowering message because they can smell the bullshit. So go back to the secret. Yeah. The secret is actually half really powerful, but it's half such utter bullshit that, and people are likely to gravitate to the part of just think about things and you're going to get them. Okay. Now, when I select guests to be on the show, dude, I I really, really live in fear of undermining my own sort of um, holistic message of you, you really can do this by having people that come on and say like, if you use the word fucking quantum to mean anything other than physics, like it makes my skin crawl because sure. I think that you're you're going to lead people down a path of um, where they will miss something truly transformative because they try the easy thing first, which is probably the more bullshitty answer. Yeah. It doesn't work. They find that it's bullshit. They sour on the whole thing or people that they respect look at it, hear the fluff, the bullshit, whatever. And they're like, that's all garbage. Sure. And so what I, what I want to do is. I really believe that there are times where you have to lie to yourself because I think people are so unable to accurately assess their abilities that there there are going to be times where I will actively encourage you to lie to yourself because I think you're more prone to think negative shit about you. Okay. And then on the other hand, talk about holding two competing ideas in your head. You have to be a fucking slave to the truth. You have to know what is real. And so my thing is I'm trying to figure this stuff out so that if... If what I really want to do is not bullshit, I actually want to help people change their lives. Okay. So I actually want to do that. Then I need to know what the fuck works and what doesn't. So my whole thing about 50% isn't malleable and 50% is. Maybe that's wrong. I hope it's wrong. I want it to be that 100% is malleable. Nothing would make me happier than that truly we are blank slates. I will say that my experience does not bear that out. The science does not seem to bear that out. But I don't give a shit. Like if they tell me it's your 99% um, just carved in stone and 1% malleable. Great. Because whatever is real, I've seen it play out in my own life. I don't give a shit what the percentages are. I want to know, oh, it's 1%. Cool. I'm just not going to waste time bullshitting about what's not real. And I'm going to fucking focus in on how to tell you how to make the most of that 1%. So my thing is I just need to understand it so that I can empower people. Cause here's, here's what I know about myself currently today. As of the moment that we're recording this, I have a two hour declining arc of influence if you're with me, dude, which is why I have I have a guy that works out of this house. He's not my fucking employee, but he works out of this house. He's an independent contractor, has his own fucking business. He used to be my employee. And he was like, dude, when I'm around you, I feel like I can do anything. And then when I left Quest and he stayed, he was like, uh, I started to lose that sense that I could accomplish anything. So I was like, come fucking work out of the house. I don't give a shit. I'll even, he comes to team lunch. We buy him lunch, like all that shit. Like I... 
I understand that if he's in the environment, if he's around me or other people that are around me all the time, like he will do more with his life, right? We are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So getting him in that environment. So I, I, I'm not okay with that. Just because I recognize that I have a two hour declining arc of influence today does not mean that I'm okay, that that is as good as I ever get. So I'm fucking trying to figure out for real, like, what do I what do I need to say or do to burrow into somebody to be able to change and influence them in such a profound way that even if they never recognize that it's me, like, cause a huge part of my theory is that I need to tell them stories. Yeah. I need to give them movies, TV shows, comic books, video games, whatever that embed this empowering ideology in their mind sure. and, you know, ends up playing itself out. But Great. that's why like I'm yeah, obsessed yeah, with this shit. Of course. Of course. You wanted me to remind you to go back to the thing I was saying about my son interrupting me. Dude, you're my hero. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, So I think that there's a flip side to that coin, which is, and you were saying it, but now I want to talk about how it actually plays out in real life. Okay. That what you're doing is important enough to keep doing. And if your son, which he will, by the way, if you continue to let him interrupt you, interrupt you, he's going to do it and do it and do it. Um, How do you know where to draw the line? Um, I would say it's, most of the time it's like so if the, if the question is like how do you how do you sort of balance uh an obsession with your work and the desire to be good and present for your family yes well first off you design a life in which these things are in conflict as rarely as possible so i don't rarely work at my house when it's possible for him to interrupt at me right so so i'm i'm not going to uh, put myself in a position where these two things are conflicting and I have to choose. I'm going to take him to daycare. I'm going to go to my office and I'm going to sit there uninterrupted for a very extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm done, I'm going to be done, right? That's how you mostly want it. I'm, I'm not necessarily referring to uh, like some, like I'm finishing the conclusion of a new book and I, I've built a chaotic life where interruptions can intervene at any time. It's more like, okay, I, I'm responding to this email from this person. It is important. I'm going to do it. But uh, in 10 years or 50 years or five minutes, when I have a little distance from it, which one of those things do I value more? This total stranger who sent me an un, unsolicited thing that I'm now having to bat back out? Or is it the fact that my son wanted to show me how his train works? Do you know what I mean? And what ultimately fills me with more happiness, what ultimately provides that sort of stillness or contentment that allows me to go back to my actual work and perform at a better level. Do you know what I mean? And so that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's like, the point is when you're, I got a great, Russ Roberts is one of my favorite writers. He's this brilliant economist. He wrote this book, uh, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. He did like a a spin on um, uh, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. He just listed his rules. And one of his rules is he's like, um, always take your child by the hand when they offer it. Meaning, uh, if your child reaches out to you, like your kid says, I want to go to the park. And you're saying, but... I was going to do this other less important thing. And so you, you take, if they, you, you take their hand when they offer the hand, because it's so rare. You don't get that much time. It's, it's, I think the point is just like, not, it's not put them first above all things, but it's don't actively reject opportunities for connection mm. because at the end of your life, those are the things that really matter to you. There, there's a great writer. I'm forgetting his name. He, he won a bunch of Pulitzer prizes, but he basically said when he had a, um, 
when he, and I, I know you disagree with this because we've talked about it, but I think it'd be interesting to discuss. He said, uh, uh, when he, when he wrote his first book, uh, it was the sort of toasted town and he was at a party and a very well-known, uh, uh, writer came up to him and said, whatever you do, don't have kids. Every kid you have is a book you won't write. And he said, that really hit me and I struggled with a long time. And then he's like, as I sit here now writing this book, <laughs> which was a book about fatherhood, uh, looking at my three children, he goes like, I would take that trade was a thousand percent worth it. Um, I think they're in less conflict than people think, but um, I, I would definitely like I'm proud of all my books I, t I tend to write I intend to write many more books but like my I have three equal priorities in my life my job my my priority is to write many books uh, to stay married and like to so to be a good husband and to be a good father those are my three things I think they're 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 not it's not one is higher than the other it's they're all three at the top mm -hmm. and I think they're the better husband I am the the better headspace I'm in as a writer the more supported I am as a writer the better father I am the more uh, I feel good about myself the the more contented I feel the more I learn about the human experience you know what I mean they're all feed into each other and I just think it's this I think it's uh, unfortunate that we've come to inter. Uh, not saying everyone should have kids because not everyone should have kids, but I'm saying it's very sad that we think that greatness is the same as entering the priesthood, which means you have to forsake <laughs> all other worldly things, which, by the way, when you really look at the history of religion is like, um, that's not even in the Bible. It's not like Jesus was like, don't, don't get married. <laughs> you know, there's even, there's even pretty strong evidence. This isn't like Da Vinci Code stuff. Uh, there are other takes on the Bible that Jesus was married, you know, I, did his, did his, was it a virgin birth? No, his mom like had sex with a guy. Like, you know, uh, the, the, the point is. I can the, feel the hate mail already. Yeah, the, the, po the point is uh, we relationships are not at odds with serenity, with peace, with greatness. To me, and, and I think Eastern students of Eastern religion either don't know this or they gloss right over it. The saddest part of Buddha's trajectory is when he walks out on his wife and child to pursue enlightenment. I, I to me, that is antithetical to enlightenment. Mm. It is is a inherently a contradiction. That's interesting. It's interesting that you think that I would disagree with any of that. I don't think I disagree with a single word you said other than that. I'm, I, when I look at my own life, yes. um, I may just, I guess, fall easily into the camp of not everybody should have kids. And yes. I think when people hear that sentiment, they think, oh, you would be a bad father. I think I would be an extraordinary father. Yeah. Um, I just don't have more interest in that than I have in continuing to live the life that I'm living now. So when sure. I think about, um, and that if, may change, right? You don't know for sure. And trust me, I've had in the back of my mind, Oh, well, if I, you know, wanted to adopt or something, I do worry that like, at some point you're just too old for it to be interesting. Um, certainly interesting for the kid where there'd just yeah. be such a, a gulf between where you're at physically sure. that you, you wouldn't be able to play properly. Anyway, that that's a whole nother thing. But, um, if time were infinite, there's no question I would have children. Sure. Because then there would be no need to choose. But yes. in every day, I'm already at the point where there are more things that I'm passionate about that I want to do. Um, and I think that and, and don't have time to do. And then I think that kids are one of the most sort of um, beautifully prepackaged 
ways to get fulfillment that yes. a human being will ever find. And since sure. I think that ultimately fulfillment is the only thing that matters for most people, it is probably the no brainer solution to, hey, you're not fulfilled in any area of your life. Have a thrive, a thriving relationship with your spouse and child. Right. Yes. So uh, the thriving part is the key because so many people then just carry whatever dysfunction they have in the rest of their life. They sure. carried over to their marriage and their child. But I think that um the reason, because here, here's my thing. I could steal man having kids so well that you would believe I had kids. Yeah. Like I could do it in a poetic form yeah. where you'd be like, fuck, this guy really gets it. Yeah. Partly because for eight years, I was essentially a, a surrogate father to this kid that I big yeah. brothered for. Yeah. And to the point where when he got removed from his family because he's being abused by his single mother and I became the guardian to help him in the court system. Like I was yeah. in this fucking kid's yeah. life. So like I get it. Yeah. And I get it to the point of also knowing that there are parts of it that are not fun. Yeah. And so just sort of weighing everything on balance. It's like, eh, it's probably not the I choice. Th I, I think the first time we met, you told me I shouldn't have kids. Now you said don't have kids. You said, hey, like you said something to the equivalent of like, think of the sacrifice of going to kids. But I, that's what I meant when I thought you, you might disagree. Here, and I don't remember what I said, but yeah. if if I know myself well enough, it would have been something along the lines of the way you think. There's something, and I say this every time we get together, so yeah. hopefully people see the consistency. There's something about the way you think I find intoxicating. You're one of my favorite authors. There's, there's a way that you step through things logically. Also, you're just a fucking good writer. Like The way you have with a sentence is so awesome. I love it the most. So selfishly sure, sure, would, sure. if all you did if i could lock you in a room and make you write the way that you write with the depth of understanding the human condition all that which of course would diminish but like that is almost certainly sort of tongue-in-cheek my advice no, would no, be no, no. I, you I, I in didn't particular take it personal at all and look i've done two i've I got two kids i've done two and a half books since they were born so i'm i'm as far as i know no falling still off. doing well still yeah. doing it yeah doing very well yes um why does stillness matter Stillness. What is it? How so do we stillness get it matters moment? in two in two respects. One, when you think about your best moments of your life, they were not accomplishments. They were moments when you were locked in uh, to a, a transcendent experience, uh, another person, uh, flow of a, a brilliant piece of creativity, whatever it is, right? The moments we think about our fondest memories are not moments when you're doing, doing, doing. They are almost always the absence of doing. It's, oh, I remember when I was standing there on this beach. I remember when we used to live here. You know, I, I like those walks that I used to go on. You know, th there are moments like that. I Moments when I had the idea for, for this, when I was at the gym and I was, you know, things like that. So those are the wonderful moments. They, they are stillness in body. They come from stillness, yet they are rare. Why would such a, why would we make such a wonderful thing rare uh, if it doesn't need to be? Second thing I would go, the best work of your life did not come from frantic busyness, right? So when I think of uh, Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis, when I think of a team, when I think of the, the Patriots down 28 to 3 in the Super Bowl, you know, when you think of moments where people did things that we did not think was possible in uh, an amount of time we didn't think was possible usually, what they've done is they've slowed things down. They have accessed some deeper part of themselves that they don't normally have access to. They they were 100% there. That's to me what stillness is. And, and so I wanted to write a book about 
how do we cultivate it? And the interesting thing is stillness does not come from outside sources. So it's already ours. So it's much more about unlocking something we have than it is about going and getting something we don't have. Interesting. Experientially, that doesn't um, listen. I know that, that that is true, but it doesn't feel true. So for somebody that's first coming to that idea that the stillness is already within them, because they're, they're not going to start thinking about stillness until the chaos has long yes. been raging. Yes. Right. So shit starts happening to you when you're a little kid and your mind never shuts off. And so um, and then if you have any level of ambition, like they're just the the still moments, a seems super rare. So they they don't feel ever present and, and a mere uncovering of something. And then, um, yeah, I'll stop there. But I mean, think about what stillness is. It's, it's, it's about removing. So you can't, you can't add by subtraction. So it must already be there. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying it's not deeply covered up. Mm. I'm not saying it's locked deep inside. One of the reasons I call it a key is that we're unlocking something. It's there. You know, uh, there's a, a Zen saying, you are seeking an ox but you are already on it. Like, you know, the idea of you're riding the elephant, you're looking for the elephant, it's underneath you, you're, right. you already got it. Um, and so, so it's, it's, I think it's primarily about removing things. Um, that's not to say that going for a walk can't induce stillness or that journaling can't induce stillness or that, you know, going to therapy can't do it. That's not to say you can't work on it, but it's primarily, I don't think it's something that's, in a way, it's the most equal thing there is. It's a thing we all have the potential to have. It's not a thing that only rich people have, that only men have, whatever it is. It's it's just there, in, inherent in our biology. And, and what I think so interesting about this idea of stillness is like, it's one of the few things that appear in all the ancient schools and religions. You know, the Buddhists have a word for it. The Confu Confucius had a word for it. Uh, Marcus Aurelius talks about it. Jesus talks about it. St. Augustine talks about it. Like everyone talks about it. Stillness is that, that thing. We know it when we see it. The problem is we don't see it enough. Mm. So if you had to define exactly what stillness is, that would yeah. be useful. And then what's your favorite story in the book? That illustrates this. The Cuban Missile Crisis was great. But yeah, I mean, that, that would, I think I can illustrate what stillness is through that story. So you look at Kennedy w goes to bed and wakes up and they're like, hey, you know that Cold War thing happening? <laughs> uh, Russia is currently building nuclear missiles in Cuba, 90 miles from American shores. And it's the worst news that probably that any American president has ever gotten, right? And so he rushes to the, you know, to, to, to meet with his advisors. He calls all the leaders in the, of, of the armed forces. He says, what do we do? And they go, obviously, we have to blow Cuba off the map. This is the nuclear war we feared. It's here. Let's go. And, and Kennedy, just like a few months before, had experienced a similar thing where basically he sort of wasn't told about and then kind of gave a green light to the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba. And they said, look, we got to invade Cuba through this, like, through secret means. It's going to be a lock. You know, let's do it. He green lights it. He doesn't really know what he's doing. They sort of bully him into it. It goes horribly. Then they bully him into escalating. It's like one of the most embarrassing moments of American mm -hmm. history. And so you would think he would go, yep, let's do it. Time is of the essence, the world. But Kennedy goes, if we bomb Cuba, what do they do? Like, what does Russia do in response? Mm. And, and the, uh, the generals were like, what? 
They like literally never thought about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they were just like, no, no, no. This is, you bomb it, then you invade. And then um, hopefully we're still alive. Like that was the extent. And what Kennedy's greatness was in, and he was a flawed man in many ways, probably would not have survived the Me Too era by any, <laughs> but, but what Kennedy says there is, is he goes, no, we are going to think this through and we are going to find out a way to de-escalate this situation because he's like, he's like, I'm not worried about, I'm not even just worried about what they're going to do. I'm worried about the ninth step. He's like, cause none of us will be around. It'll go and the world will be gone. Right. And he, he's, he had this expression. He said, we use time as a tool, not as a couch. Meaning you don't just sit back and do nothing. I like that. You use time as your advantage. And what he kept saying over and over again, like he, he knew Khrushchev personally. He'd just been in the room with Khrushchev and Khrushchev had basically beat the shit out of him. Khrushchev had bullied him. He thought Kennedy was weak. He'd mocked him. He'd already embarrassed him at Bay of Pigs, right? And, and so Kennedy could have been like, this is my chance. I'm going to get revenge. Kennedy just goes like, what's Khrushchev thinking? Why did he do this? What did he hope would happen? What's success to him in this situation? And he kept a asking these questions. And then he'd go for a swim in the White House pool. Then he'd go for a walk in the, in the, in the White House Rose Garden. Then he'd write, he, we have the notes that he mm -hmm. took as he got these briefings. And he would write things like, he'd be like, consensus, consensus, consensus. He's like, missiles, missiles, missiles. He's just <laughs> right. He's just thinking it through. There's a picture of a sailboat that he drew. Mm -hmm. He's doodling a sailboat. He's trying to calm himself down. And so he works through this and basically he realizes that this isn't Khrushchev thinking uh, he's the strong party. It's, it's an act of weakness. Khrushchev thinks like, it's not going so well for, 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 for communism. If we can humiliate the Americans, this will be good for it. He, th he thought he could steal one. Mm. And, and so Kennedy goes, does he not understand how many more missiles we have? Like, does he not understand who I am? This is, like, and he realizes that Khrushchev is overreached, that he, Khrushchev had rushed into this. He had not thought about it. So he's like, we got to give these guys some time to think about this. We got to show them that they made a mistake and give them the opportunity to back out of it. Mm. So they end up putting a military blockade around Cuba. They don't attack Cuba. They go, nothing's coming in or out of Cuba uh, this is not happening. They go to the UN. They do some sort of political theater that is embarrassing to the to the Soviets. Um, they they challenge the Soviet ambassador in private, not in public, because they want them to be able to back down. Mm. Even what's Kennedy even calls it a quarantine and not a blockade because a blockade sounds more aggressive. And there is a moment where like American ships. And a Soviet submarine are like locked. They they say they're like nuclear powers were eyeball to eyeball. The fate of humanity. This, you know, all none of us might be here, right? And and Kennedy's like Kennedy just had a sense that he had gotten it. That that that, that as tense as they were, they were actually heading towards de-escalation. And then boom, they get like a tell like a, a telex or whatever how they communicated back then from Khrushchev, and Khrushchev's like. I think we're pulling on a rope here and we're tying the knot tighter and eventually that knot's got to be cut. And Kennedy's like, yeah, you think? Like, what the <laughs> fuck? You know? But, but what Kennedy had managed to do was through patience, through empathy, through wisdom, through an understanding of history, through a lack of self-righteousness and ego, through a mastering of his emotions, uh, had managed to 
take a situation that was on the brink of catastrophic escalation, mm. de-escalate it, but basically first not make it worse, then de-escalate it. And then when he starts talking to the Soviets, he realizes like, okay, uh, they're going to back down because they know this is, they know they, they thought they were calling a bluff and I proved this on a bluff. And he goes, and then uh, I'm going to tell them in private, hey, if you get, once you back down here, I will remove missiles we have in Turkey that may have actually pushed you to do this in the first place. And let's solve this situation more or less permanently as well. So, so when I say, you know, stillness, when you see it, like, I, I don't know if I can give you a one sentence definition of stillness, mm. but to me, that story is stillness and the world would be a better place if more leaders had that stillness. I think you would be a better boss if you had it. I think I would be a better writer if I had it. I think I'd be better in traffic if I had it. Do you know what I mean? Like all, every, everything we do is better for that stillness mm. because it's clarity, it's self-control, it's purpose. You know, it's all the things that we know we want in life are made possible by having that, that, that accessing that force. Mm. What I love is that you're defining it more than just, because I think a key part of it, and if you had asked me to define it, I would have said the, the mastery of your emotions. Yeah. But in that story, in the way that you ultimately define it in the book, it's, it's clearly a lot more than just having control of your emotions, which is pretty interesting. And I actually tell that story, like, so I split the book up. I say there's like, there's mental stillness, there's sort of emotional, mm. spiritual stillness, and there's physical stillness. I actually put the missile crisis primarily in the mental stillness. To me, this is a problem he solved logically and rationally. Um, ironically, Kennedy is a guy who's like in the Cuban missile crisis, has one of his like sort of goons go like pick up a girl from a nearby college that he has sex with in a <laughs> hotel room. You know what I mean? Like Kennedy was emotionally like when I hear that, you don't go, oh, that guy, that's stillness. Right. You think that's like spiritual emptiness and awfulness, mm. right? Like he's he thinks the world might be ending and he's not with his family and he's not at work. He's getting his rocks off, right. you know, in a creepy way, no less. But the, the, the point is, like, I think you got to attack stillness from these three different fronts. But it's, it's like, can you have the stillness to, like, actually think a problem all the way through? Do you have the stillness to master your emotions? And then do you have habits and practices and you understand your physical body well enough to have stillness there as well? Yeah, it's interesting seeing the way that you broke down the book into those um, – one thing that I found interesting about the this particular story is that he once it all de-escalates, he actually ends up thanking the gardener yeah. of the Rose Garden for yeah. her role in because he just kept going for walks. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because obviously, well, not obviously, um, movement, being outside, like things that have a very calming at least effect on the mind, I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Rogers would talk about this. He's like, when I'm angry, I go swim laps. You know what I mean? It's mm. like, uh, he's not saying I'm not angry. He's not denying that he has anger. He's a human being. But he's just like, look, I'd rather swim faster and then come back and not yell at the person, but talk <laughs> to them nicely. You know what I mean? Like, and so I just love the idea that, oh, something like Mr. Rogers, he's not just born this way. Like, he made that. That, that is a character mm. that he lived his whole life in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, the stillness isn't this, even if it's something we possess naturally, it does not 
occur naturally. We have to cultivate it just mm. in the way that you cultivate greatness or excellence or, or I don't know, your singing voice. Right. So how do we cultivate stillness? Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a variety of things. I mean, it, on the one hand, it might be like, what inputs, you know, do you limit inputs? Do you have mentors? You know, who are your models that you're basing your, your life on? Um, you know, it, it, it might be, Hey, I need to go. I got an anger problem from the childhood that I have. So I'm going to go to therapy and work on that. Or it might be the sense that like, I've got that I, I wrongly have conflated in my mind, you know, success and money. And so now money has this power over me in a way that it shouldn't. Or it might be like, look, like you don't have any stillness because you eat terribly and you don't sleep and, you know, you, uh, you never exercise, you know, like the, there, I don't think there's not one thing you do, but you have to, you have to get it from all these different things and it, it, they cultivate each other mm. in the way that like journaling is a physical act that calms the mind and the emotions. And th the more you work through your emotions in your journal, the more logical and rational you can be. Hmm. Why did you write a book on stillness? Why, why that book? Why now? I mean, I think one, the, the short answer is you write whatever you're interested in. Like you write, like hmm. we were saying at the beginning, you, you write where your heart goes. It's just, it's just a pattern I was seeing and it was something I wanted more of in my own life. And it was something I was seeing across all these different schools. Um, when I think about an egotistical person, because the previous book in the series was Ego is the Enemy, what what is the what do they all have in common? They're frantic. They're miserable. They're roiled by these sort of this internal angst, and and so just and and what do I think about what 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 are the people in in obstacle? The people who overcame these incredible things that 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 endured adversity that that none of us none of us uh, most normal people couldn't get through. What what do they have on the other side of that? They have this sort of incredible stillness. I think of Ulysses S. Grant. He's sitting in this room, you know, in a room like this, uh, uh, you know, posing for a photograph and somebody steps on a skylight above him and the glass comes pouring down and he, he just keeps talking. You know what I mean? Like, because he's exposed himself to like battle enough times, mm. he's mastered the, his mental and, and emotional sort of, he's, that's a guy with nerve control and stillness and nerve control, I think are part of the same equation. Mm. Yeah. That the ability to get control of your biological systems, I think is, is really important and really, um, in my life, it's been very difficult to do. And of course, if it, it was easy, everyone would do it and it wouldn't be that rare. <laughs> Very, very fair. You, do I remember right? Are you, have you done or are you doing therapy? Yeah, I go to therapy. And um, to what end? Uh, I think like I have a chapter in the book about the inner child. Like most, the, I think the reason most of us are afraid of success or are incapable of having good relationships or feel angry all the time or take things personally is it's not us. It's like a seven-year-old inside of us or it's mm. whatever age that we experienced some trauma or were deprived of something that, you know, a slightly healthier uh, childhood would have would have provided for us. And so, you know, what, how, how, how I would just urge people to think and don't, I'm not a doctor, so I don't want to give advice, but like you can, you can read about this. There's great writers who've talked about it, but just like, think about like, think about that thing that gets you really angry or think about that thing that makes you really sad or think about that thing that really makes you feel like a piece of shit. 
and and go like how old is that feeling not how old is it in your life but like what age would you ascribe to that feeling like so i have a lot of what do you mean by that? i have like a lot of feelings where it's like i'm a i'm a 14 year old boy that like people aren't appreciating or seeing or loving and and then when i think back to my own childhood that makes total sense Mm. like i don't want to get too much into it but you get what i'm saying it's like oh okay it's because there is an unloved 14 year old inside of me actually has nothing to do with these things. I'm not saying these outside situations aren't problematic. I shouldn't resolve them. Like Judd Apatow talks about realizing that the movie studio execs who were giving him notes on his movies, it, he had to realize they weren't his parents. (laughs) Like these weren't his parents who were getting a divorce, uh, telling him what he telling him contradictory things about what he's allowed to do or not mm. that these are people who are trying to make the movie better they might be wrong right, right? the notes might be utterly stupid he might not be under no obligation to do them but he doesn't need to it doesn't need to spike his heart rate and he doesn't need to go you can't tell me what to do and like it, it doesn't need to make him miserable because it's just objective notes from the people who paid for the movie mm. it's not <laughs> fuck you dad you know and that's yeah. all that like daddy daddy look at me fuck you dad or, or or like you're not my mom you know like that energy we all have and it pops out in less than productive ways in our mm-hmm. lives so if, if you're going to go to therapy that would be a thing to work on and if you were going to package up therapy for people so they couldn't go you're going to go on all of our behalf what is it what are the mechanisms that are useful is it just talking is it that your therapist has particular insights i mean i think a good therapist uh it depends on different schools different training but it's a mix of talking and then it's it's like sometimes like in in inner child work you sit and you go you're that's an empty chair and you are talking to and and for you like uh, not to psychoanalyze because i'm not qualified again but you know maybe you're talking to the 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 eight-year-old fat Tom who, you know, I don't know. You know what I mean? Sure, like you're sure, talking sure. to that kid and you're telling him what your parent should have told him or what a teacher should have told him. Uh, so he felt good and loved and mm. felt empowered and that you might be able to tell him the things that you didn't learn till much later down the road. It's interesting. When you were saying that, the first thing that popped in my mind was not something, because I definitely felt loved, certainly by my mother, who always made sure that I felt that no matter what was going on. The thing I wish somebody had done for me was um, push me a bit. So when you were saying like, oh, you did that and and you didn't feel loved, I was actually thinking about like the time the soccer ball hit me in the leg because Tacoma's fucking cold and you play soccer largely in the winter and it left the imprint of the ball on my leg and it was, it fucking hurt. And I was so whiny and that I just walked off the field. Yeah. And what I wish is that somebody in an effective manner, not just to be mean to me, but that somebody had said toughen up basically that, that being tough is valuable, right? I, that's what I wish somebody had conveyed to me, not in the, you know, don't be a wuss. Not, that's not what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is somebody to explain to me that a suffering can be very useful. B that being tough certainly is useful and do have explained to me what it has become arguably the most important lesson I've learned in my life, which is that you can get tougher and it's important to do so. Oh, I totally agree. And, and maybe 
because it's supposed to be it, it might be like why didn't they do that right like did they not think you were worth it right were they preoccupied by other things were they focused on a sibling you know like why and and, and did that man maybe maybe the reason that's standing out to you is that there are lots of similar situations where you really needed someone to tell you something uh a not super complicated thing that should have been obvious and instead of doing that they just let you do whatever because they you know maybe they had low expectations for you or maybe they uh they they couldn't talk to you without arguing or you know like and mm. so i'm sure it's a little bit deeper than just like oh why didn't you tell me to be tough yeah but like what but it's more like why didn't you like not you know what i mean like wh why right. didn't you think that i because I, I have a little bit of that too it's like why didn't you why didn't you push me and it's like oh i don't think you pushed me because you didn't think i was capable of it and that's very sad because if your parents aren't rooting for you who's rooting for you you know what i mean and, and and what kind of effect does that have on a person? Because you look around and the other parents, the, the same thing happened to another kid and the dad did rush over and he reassured the kid and he pushed him to do it. And now, you know, and, 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 and how would that have changed the course of your life, et cetera, et cetera. I absolutely despise how important childhood is for people. Like the amount that it influences people, doesn't that freak you out as a parent? Like, yeah, God, the, the way that we take in information as a child is so terrifying and the knock-on effect that you can see even in rats have you um, seen those studies where if you take a rat and you even remove it from its mother let's say it has yeah. a mother that's a, a low it shows low affection so it doesn't lick very often and that rat will grow up anxious and fearful yeah. ju just based on how much the mom licked the rat. So right. they thought, okay, well, maybe it's just genetic. Maybe, yeah. you know, mothers that have that are actually passing on something that just makes you anxious and fearful. So they took low licking um, rat pups or moms that were low licking and gave them to mothers that were high licking and the rats grow up to be fine. So it's like absolutely distressing to me how much our childhood imprints on us and ends up influencing a lot of the brain wiring that we have and our propensity to react in certain ways. Ay, ay, ay. Like, yeah, it is. It is. But then you then you also you go look at what the what what the human experience has been able to triumph over. Oh, don't get me wrong. You know I mean? so balance is fucking balance, amazing. Yes. I'm just saying, like, yes. as somebody who wants to believe that right now today, hey, you can become whoever you want. Yes. I when I was hearing you talk about having a conversation with the 14 year old you in an empty yeah. chair, I was like, Oh my God, the amount of work yes. like to unwind some of this stuff is. And that is, that is true. But also we're talking about optimizing at the margins. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying like my frustration with how I was raised has not prevented me from being very successful, sure. from rising to the top of my field, to being in a happy marriage, to having my own kids. So it, it's more like, yeah, isn't it also annoying like how much like microscopic changes to our diet can affect performance <laughs> or or that even like I just I just I, I'm in LA because I spoke to the Los Angeles Rams. Like why do that? Why do NFL coaches and players need to be inspired? Like you would you know what I mean? Like you'd think at that level with all the money, all the energy, all of all the all the, they've been working towards it their whole life, all this and they still need tiny you know, bits. So I think, I think the, the good news is like basically anyone, no matter what you've gone through, think about the people that, that, that lived through the Holocaust or lived through slavery, uh, or, or 
you know, extreme disabilities. Look at what they've been able to accomplish. Again, this goes to Marcus' quote, like, uh, if it's humanly possible, you can do it. Almost certainly whatever you and I have gone through, whatever anyone has gone through, somebody has gone through worse and managed to triumph over it. So we should take encouragement from that. And then we can go, that being said, so, so basically what you went through does not excuse or exempt you uh, or keep you out of the race towards greatness, then you're going towards greatness. You want to get there. You're going to have to eventually look under the hood and fine tune some things. Yes, I agree with everything you said. The only thing that that gives me unease and continued turmoil is some people seem so stuck. And I'll, I'll put it this way. There are people in my life who I love very much who are like when you take the, and this quote actually apparently isn't Mother Teresa, but is so often attributed to her. I always just give her the credit. Uh, no one will act for the many, but people will act for the one. So it's like for all the things that I do, you know, trying yeah. to impact people at scale, I come back to the people I'm closest to sure. that I love that sure. I'm trying to like find the way to help them. Right. Ultimately, and, you write a book for one person. Correct. Because it's the only thing you can really wrap your hands around. Right. And... I can't figure out some of the people that I'm closest to. I can't figure out how to help them past yeah. whatever happened to them in their childhood that has them stuck, that gave them a frame of reference that is sure. disempowering, that not only a frame of reference, but like a neurochemical reward system where they, they just continue to make decisions that do not serve them. And yeah. it's like, how the fuck do you get them past that? Yeah, and maybe it's uh maybe it's not something you control, and it, it's not gonna it's gonna unlock itself. Do you know? What I mean? Like, not saying it's not. No, no. I, what some I'm some people what, are never going to get unlocked. No, no. What I'm saying is like, in, there's a Zen expression: when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yes. And maybe you're not the teacher, or you're not the teacher at this moment. You know what I mean? It, yes. it may be that that uh, a hurricane's got to move the boulder a little bit, and then it's possible to be pushed by by humans, you know? Yeah. I don't think you're bothered by that reality. Cause I totally acquiesce to the truth of that, Yes, but it doesn't seem to bother you at quite the level that it bothers me. Yeah. But, but look at the core of stoicism is ultimately like, not that you focus on yourself at the expense of other people, but you ultimately go, it's not in my control right now. It's not in my control right now. Being upset about it doesn't do anything. Being sad about it doesn't do anything. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, so I'm not being blasé, but 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 I am being. Uh, I am. I'd rather move on than despair. Yeah, it's one of those where that is the absolute right answer, and yet I find that some of what drives me is probably what is an artificial carrot. It is almost certainly true that some people I'm never going to be able to impact and I accept the truth of that. And yet being inspired to try to find a way to take the hardest case of people that I care about yeah. and say, I want to find a way because if I can impact this sort of at the extreme hard case, yes. then all the people that are in the middle, then I will have been able to help. Well, look, uh, you probably like this quote. I, I don't know the beginning, but basically the idea is like all progress depends on the irrational man. Right. The person who believes that. they can pull the impossible thing off. It's ultimately what does it. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's great to be the irrational man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that doesn't mean it's fun to be the irrational man. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be the irrational man. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And I think we do. I think 
Oh, God. I don't know if this is me now trying to put my value system onto other people, but I really think that being the irrational man is the only right answer. And that, oh, God, it, you have to have a whole host. The, the, all, all of my reactions right now are the reason that I'm writing a book is because when I go to give somebody a, an Instagram answer to a question, I'm always like, I'm lying to them because yeah. I'm oversimplifying sure. this. And that the reality is so fucking complicated that the only way to capture this is, is to really write the whole book. So when I think about like, okay, being the irrational man, allowing yourself to believe that anything is possible. So you have yeah. beliefs. Beliefs are part of the formula, yeah. but values are part of the formula. Why values? Because values are what you ultimately hardwire into yourself to get a neurochemical response from pursuing the things because pursuit is all you have. You yeah. may never achieve it. So if the pursuit isn't fun, if it isn't deeply fulfilling, there's no reason to pursue it. But as somebody who once um, lavished in my emotional weakness and thought there was no problem with it and saw myself as Solieri, which I'm assuming is a reference you will get. Um, and I lived there and almost I found identity in it for sure. In being like, I'm just smart enough to realize how much smarter other people are. And like, I, I thought yeah. that there was something interesting to that. And then entirely changed my value system, no longer allowed myself to worship at the altar of weakness, began to hold myself to a different standard, but not so I could self-flagellate myself. I don't, I don't beat myself yeah. up when I'm weak about something. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to push myself because I know the depths of fulfillment of sincere pursuit. It doesn't matter whether I actually accomplish it. Just, am I really, really trying this or am I just giving rhetoric to the fact that I'm trying? And as long as I know that I'm really, really trying, it's very interesting. So I believe that, so you've got the beliefs, you've got values, that's part of it. But then there's even like, habits routines the default network of the brain sure. like rewiring yourself so that you actually get a neurochemical response for pursuing things that are difficult so for instance i fucking hate cold showers but i do them I took one because they make me feel better about myself yeah. what'd you say i took one this morning you and i both yeah so i get what you're saying writing a book is like uh, on the scale of irrational man things writing a book to help people is like the lowest of the low you know what i mean like but trying to individually save every person probably you know what i mean i just i guess what i'm saying is like look i'm i'm glad i live in a world of elon musks i don't want to be that elon musk i want to be a different version of elon musk you know what I mean? and elon musk's a bad example it's like look we are benefit we benefit from the horrible murderous conquerors who who settled this country, right? Uh, that doesn't mean that what they did was great. You know, that doesn't mean I would go murder millions right. of Indians, but like I certainly benefit from it. So the, the history and society, dep progress depends on the irrational man in that sense, but you got to decide who you're going to be. Mm. What do you hope people take away from stillness is the key? I hope they think better. I think they find some. I, I think they they improve their soul, and and then I I hope they improve their spirit and body. Like I I hope they I hope it's sort of a holistic way to Im, to improve their life because I don't think they're I don't think greatness is really greatness if it comes at the expense of misery or happiness or your ability to even recognize that you've achieved greatness, mm -hmm. right? Like Billie Jean King, the tennis great, she was saying like, look, like the relentless desire to improve and to never be satisfied with your performance is what makes a champion. 
but it also prevents a champion from realizing or even uh, enjoying or even realizing that they are a champion. Do you know what I mean? And so to me, greatness, uh, true, true greatness is to have done it, maybe not with the dark energy, right? To have accomplished it and be happy. To, to have greatness and success, maybe to, to bring that back to where we were earlier. Mm. And, and that's what I'm hoping to get people. Like, I would just, maybe it's a fantasy of mine, but I would just love the idea that like, like I, I would love Hemingway who doesn't kill himself at the end, who basically doesn't abuse women, who is a good father. I don't, I don't see why the work and the monster have to exist simultaneously and and so ultimately i think it's a book about how do you how do you get the things you want in a better way man i think that's a a profoundly cool thing to want and i like the way that you explain it that the greatness and the monster don't have to coexist there's something interesting about kanye west though yeah that when i look at that and look, I, I don't know yeah. the guy at all. So this is me cobbling together things from the outside. But hearing some of the things that he said about like um, taking uh, medicine, I don't know what yeah. other word to use for it, um, to try to regulate his emotions and everything, then made him numb and, and made it impossible for him to create. Sure. Um, there is something to that. And I don't believe in the torture genius. I yeah. certainly, uh, one, I have achieved success without torture or genius. Yeah. So that doesn't, uh, yeah. you know, that doesn't seem sure. like prerequisites. Right. Um, but it, there, it's a fine line to walk between you can see how the, the madness when it comes in just the right way. And, and I use that, I guess, in a colloquial way. I don't mean literal madness, but the the like where you're you're sort of existing outside of the confines of the way that other people think and limit themselves in ways that um, they don't even realize they're limiting themselves. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. And look, maybe Kanye is a better example than Elon Musk. I'm glad to live in a world of Kanye. Mm. I'm glad I don't live in Kanye's world. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to live in his head. You know, look. Donald Trump being Donald Trump made him president. Would you trade places with him? No. Get not a political thing. I'm saying, would you live in Donald Trump's brain if it meant you got to be president? Right. I, almost no one would take that trade. Um, and so it, it's like how, but right under Kanye West, there's all sorts of other musicians who are not. And that, that's why I think the argument, it, it's so hard. I guess we're asking like what scales, you know, because, okay, sure. We're for Kanye, but like, I mean, most musicians don't have that problem. You know what I mean? Like uh, most musicians are able to be super creative and create brilliant things and 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 they don't have to storm the stage of the Grammys. And you know, like they don't have to say <laughs> right. these things. So it, I guess, why is it on us to prove that, uh, that, that like, you know, maybe it's on him to prove that actually we can't have one without the other. You know, it's interesting to me is like, I think maybe a slightly different question is the right question, which is how do you step outside of the perspective that the world has to see things anew, whether it's Elon Musk, who I think is 
extraordinarily good at that of saying like so many people would say, well, I can't be a rocket scientist because I didn't go to yeah. engineering school. And he's like, but you can read the books. And as long as you can understand it and, yeah. and you recognize sort of the, the laws of physics and you adhere to them, like, you know, as long as it doesn't violate the laws of physics, then yeah. I can figure it out. Um, or Kanye with music, you know, the same thing, or Jay-Z with what he's done with both business and music of just being able to step outside you know, we're all, we're constantly constructing our vision of the world. And this is, this is one of my own personal obsessions. In fact, this is largely what was driving my desire to do this show is like, I want to get farther and farther outside of the way that other people view the world so that I can do something new and different because the way that everybody is seeing things, the way that I've been seeing things like, in fact, this will be the easiest way to sum this up. My current skill set has already taken me as far as it's going to take me. And said another way, my current perspective has already taken me as far as it's going sure, to take me. So sure. now how do I begin to, to knock myself askew? And so often people need some sort of life-changing event, becoming a parent, the death of a loved one, like right. something that, that allows them the freedom of I'm no longer beholden to the way that, that people see me yeah. or, or I'm no longer beholden to their framework of the world and, and bear with me one more second. So, um, I just had Molly Bloom on impact theory. Do you know who Molly the Bloom poker is? Player? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess technically yeah. not the poker yeah. player, but she right. created the, or yeah. she built the game and, um, she was talking about how when when she got arrested and there were 17 federal agents, machine guns on her, yeah. flashlights in her face. And she was like, there was so much freedom in I had failed in front of the entire world. And so all of the the things that had been just closing in on me for years, the need to succeed, the need yeah. to prove people wrong, the need because her brothers, I guess, are both prodigies. One was a two time Olympic um, medalist, I think. And then um played in the nfl really? and her other either. brother yeah her yeah. other brother is a harvard trained uh cardiothoracic surgeon and so she just felt invisible yeah. in her family yeah. growing up and so Some inner child shit we were just right. talking about. yeah exactly and so she was like all of a sudden like the that frame of reference she didn't use those words but that frame of reference that she had built that said she had to do and be all of these things it it shattered into a million pieces and rather being sort of the lowest of the low moments or i'm sure it was briefly but she said then it was like it was freedom yeah and what i want to get to is okay, I, I really have no interest in being a torture genius. Like, yeah. so if you said to me, hey, you can have genius, but it comes at the expense of torture, I would say, no, 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 I'm just yeah. fine. Like, because I know fulfillment at the end of the day is, is really the only thing that matters. And hopefully that, that I'm always shocked at how unself-evident that is, that feeling profoundly and unshakably good. Yes. Nothing is forever. Even fulfillment is, is yeah. it sort of ebbs and flows. But having that sort of anti-fragile, like I do hard things, I contribute to this world, I'm constantly trying to improve. Um, I can feel that my ego is not built around anything fragile. It's not built around being good or better or smart or anything like that. It's, you know, learning and helping and, and all of those things um, that, you know, that that is all that matters. So to me, okay. that would be a fantastic definition of stillness. Interesting. That's what equanimity means, the inability to to be shaken, the Stoic word for it is apatheia, when you're not jerked around by any of these mm -hmm. external things. The the Epicureans called it ataraxia. Like all that that's what enlightenment is, that's what nirvana is, right? That like you get there. Mm -hmm. That and 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 so I think that's what that's what I'm saying. So we think stillness is this sort of 
this absence, this weakness, this it's laying back. I think it's it's the opposite of that. It's like really getting in there. And like what you're saying with Molly, I think it's uh, we all have those moments. I think ideally, if we're looking at a scalable strategy, we're like, okay, how can we get that flash of insight from a source other than 17 federal agents because you've been running, you know what I mean? Because like, mm. it's really about what happens next that's important. So can we get, can we get there from reading a book? Can mm. we get there from therapy? Can we get there from a mentor? Can we get there from, uh, maybe it's psychedelics. Can we get there from doing work? Mm. You know, what do, do we have to blow drugs? up our lives? Uh, I'm very anti-psychedelics. Really? Yes. Have we talked about this? No. Tell me more. Uh, I have two. My two flip answers are: I haven't heard anyone tell me anything from psychedelics that I haven't seen in basically every rudimentary philosophical <laughs> text. You know. Uh, and two, uh, I would like to know from any point in human history where a magical drug or pill was able to fix any spiritual issue. Uh, for any person at any sustainable, uh, at any sustainable level. What do you think about the new trials and stuff for MDMA usage for PTSD and stuff like that? Uh, I, and those would be the two instances where I'm not only not opposed to it, but I'm very pro it, pro, uh, very for, for it. it because treatment resistant depression, you're already trying really difficult drugs, mm. uh, PTSD, something profoundly bad has happened to you. So the idea that you'd be willing to gamble some things to fix it totally for, um, especially if it's being done in a medical setting, you know, by mm. people who know what they're doing. What I'm really starting to get worried about is people who are not doctors, uh, uh, who are, it's, uh, sort of freely prescribing, uh, you know, transformative medical experiences right. as a magical solution to really profound issues that people have. So my, I, I like, I would love for the medical community to do what the medical community is going to do. I just, I just don't like this idea that like, uh, we should be like tweeting and you know, making videos about it. I, I, I'm just, it just makes me nervous. Mm -hmm. I don't have any judgment for anyone who's talking about it or doing it. It just makes me very nervous because like historically, I just don't see a lot of precedence for that ending well. Mm. Usually it blows up in everyone's face. And we are living in a time where like, because a lot of this mentality is coming from Silicon Valley, where Silicon Valley through some of those thinking has kicked out some important legs of the stool on which society depends. Do you know what I mean? Oh, now this is getting really interesting. I just Tell, mean I like, don't know oh, what it's I mean, like so. what, like, uh, what if the internet can replace our relationships with other people? Or mm. like, what if we can just have an app that fixes this problem? And then we're like, oh, wait, you basically blew up civil the civilized world. You know what I'm saying? Do you like, think that's actually happening? I just, I just mean like, we can't even agree on what reality is anymore. And mm. I think social media has largely exacerbated that, if not created the problem to begin with. So you have a son. Yes. One of the reasons that I am glad I don't have kids. If you had given me um, immersive virtual sex as a teenager. Yeah. I would never have left. I'm not sure who would have. So it, like that one, that scares me. I am so glad that we don't or that we didn't have the internet when I was a teenager. I just, I worry about how many hours I would have lost to porn. 
Yeah, it would be insane. I, yeah, all the, or just like, can you imagine? I, I don't have a, a daughter, but like, can you imagine being a... Wait, your second? Are you, I have two boys. Really? Yeah. Well, for some reason, I thought for sure you had a daughter recently. No, if, if but if I had a daughter, and, and it's a good problem for boys too, but uh, to be a 13-year-old girl is already a deeply yeah. insecure, uh, overwhelming experience where you feel like you're being judged, where you feel like you don't measure up, you know, all these things. I can't imagine adding Instagram to that experience. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like that's just terrifyingly terrific. so. Yeah. Like you already th nobody thinks they look, adults don't think they look good in pictures. Right. What does a 13-year-old what business does a 13-year-old have managing a modeling account for herself, right. which is essentially what Instagram is? And it like look, models have always gone through this and so celebrities and you know public people. But we used to pay people a lot of money. Like mm -hmm. I have a social media account and I have to deal with the fact that people say mean things or I post something that I thought was cool and people didn't like it. But I get paid a lot of money. You know what I mean? Right. Like I'm compensated for this. Uh a sixteen year old is not. Yeah, yeah, man. I uh... I'm conflicted because when I think about the people that I have had access to, the ideas that I've had access to because of the internet, because of social media, when I think about the fact that I have essentially dedicated my adult life and my fortune to helping people via yeah, sure. social media. So it's like there, there are, there's tremendous upside not have for broken, kids. Fuck. My work would not have broken through without social media. And so, uh, and you know, as as problematic as the internet has been, I also it was also a wonderful experience for me. Like I sort of I remember you know getting the internet. I got an email address in maybe like fifth grade, and I was oh. very early to it. But I I like I this world was very different than the world that I existed in, in which my parents did not understand me, mm -hmm. in which I was not particularly sort of uh, believed in or 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 pushed like I was, Oh my God, there's this world out here with more people like me in it. And so there's wonderful things. And a lot of, so even as an adult, a good chunk of, I, I had dinner last night with someone that I, uh, who I found out liked my work from social media and it was awesome. You know what I mean? Like, uh, this is not just a random person. It's an interesting person, but like, you know, <laughs> like the, the point is like all of the, there's so many, pros there's just also a lot of downsides yeah fuck all right so let's go back to um what's going on in silicon valley so yes um what in what way is it just the experiment with the internet and apps that you're saying is kicking no, out i just the leg? i just mean like you know i, I just feel like i've this this is probably getting into just like lame social commentary but I, it's just like weren't these people just telling us that bitcoin was going to replace money which created an enormous financial bubble you know weren't these people just telling us that polyamory was the future of relationships you know what I mean? Like, right. uh, what what is Tinder and and these other apps done to the dating dating world? I, it's just not everything needs to be disrupted, you know. And uh, and there are always consequences and unintended consequences for the things that we do. And I think we're just the the problem is the unintended consequences come far enough down the road. And so I just wish there was a little bit more intellectual humility from these people. Uh, who are talking about how they found a plant in the Amazon rainforest that is all upside and no downside. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I have a very weird relationship with drugs. So I'm super um, probably afraid is the right word. So I, I didn't have my first drink of alcohol until I was 26. Wow. And I probably wouldn't 
have even done that if I hadn't met my wife and she was like, no, 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 come on. Like, yeah. this will be fun. Let's do it together. Yeah. I don't have an addictive personality. So yeah. I, I don't have a fear of becoming addicted. What I have is a fear of, I always had a fear of doing anything that would fuck up my brain. Yeah, like I'm just too. super sure. psychotic sure. about that. Um, I've tried micro dosing yeah. and it didn't do anything for me. And because I worry enough about doing yeah. things in my brain and, but I've never gone all the way to, you know, some transformative experience. And then at the same time as a writer, um, I was writing this scene in neon future, which is the comic book that we created. And I wrote about uh, a guy and I really wanted him to have like this, uh, a moment that, that shifted his sure. consciousness that not, not, not in some grand psychedelic way, just yeah. like a little bit, like yeah. look at things just yeah. a little bit. And my natural reaction was to have him do drugs yeah, because it works. Yeah. Like when I think about when I drink, which I don't do very often, but when I drink, it's like, I feel like I'm suppressing the urge to dance on the table. And that's, that is a wonderful feeling, yeah. right? So yeah, sure. uh, I, I drink on occasion with my wife and we get into like this little cocoon. Like it does, the reason that this shit lives on and it lingers and all that is because it actually does something. Sure. And so for somebody that one, I'm super keen to try MDMA. Yeah. I want to do it with my wife. I don't want to do it in a clinical setting. Yeah. But I think that would be fucking awesome. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think it's it's also, again, this is a little flip, but like uh, if it was so transcendent and transformative, why do they have to do it multiple times? That's fair. And I've heard people give that criticism like, hey, this isn't something that you should be doing over and over and over. This is right. And yet it's it because I think that is the nature of drugs. And I'm not trying mm -hmm. to say like, oh, this is a gateway drug. You're going to get addicted. But the nature of drugs is is. You are getting the thing without the work for the thing, mm -hmm. right? And very rarely do you tell humans, here's a shortcut, take the long, and then they take the right. long way. That's just not how we're wired, right? right. You know, you, uh, you, you want the shortcut all the time. Do you meditate? Not really. Interesting. I tried to write a book about stillness without invoking or talking about meditation mm. very much because... You know, Ramit Sethi talks about how, like, look, people aren't going to make budgets. They're just not going to make budgets. So don't tell them to make budgets because right. you're you're already starting them. You're already setting them up to fail. And so I wanted to talk about stillness from a variety of other angles that would make their life tangibly better. Mm. That would not require them to do a thing that either they're not cut out to do or they're not willing to do. Um, and if they are cut out for it. Well, there's like 8 trillion books about that. Yeah. Because of the physiological, uh, what I call physiological hooks, I think meditation is quite literally something every single human being should do. Now, if you agree. do it and then yeah. you reject it, hey, fine, fair yeah. enough. Like if you know how to diaphragm breathe and get yourself out of the sympathetic nervous system into the parasympathetic, but it's one of those where thankfully I discovered meditation probably about four years ago. And then I, I went through a brutally, brutally stressful time in my life. It was yeah fucking crazy and when i think about if i hadn't had meditation during that period sure. like whoa that that legitimately i worry about the the toll that would have taken on me sure. had i not been able to de-escalate my nervous system yeah no I, I i tend to find that i get that meditative experience from walking from swimming mm. um from you know from getting into flow states from other things but uh you know if i could it, if 
if the times that I tried it, it worked very well for me, I'd be doing it all the time. Right. Just haven't been able to get there. Ah, super interesting. All right, man. Where should people find you? Where should they find the book? Yes. Which is rad. Okay. Stillness is the key. Available everywhere. Books are sold. Um, you can follow me. I'm at Ryan Holiday. But I won't actually reach you, will I? Uh, usually no. <laughs> uh, I don't even, uh, I don't even really check them, but, uh, then there's, uh, ryanholiday.net. And then if you're interested in the stoicism stuff we're talking about, there's dailystoic.com, which is a free email that mm. goes out every day. And then if you can't even do an email, there's, uh, at dailystoic on Instagram, which is a quote from the stoics every day to think about. And then the thing that you should be promoting, which I'm startled that you were not, is the Daily Stoic on YouTube. Oh, yes. Which is one of the only platforms that matter, in my opinion. <laughs> and It is uh, the most underrated of all the social networks. It, it's going to rule the world soon enough, I promise you. It is yeah. so much better algorithmically than everything else that's out there as a content creator. If you're creating content, you're not on fucking YouTube. You're out of your mind. And the stuff you, that you're you doing on it. YouTube is rad. Thank you. Yeah, so, I guess it's YouTube.com slash Daily Stoic get after it my man thank you so much for coming on the show anytime you have something to promote i'd love to sit down with you again i love the way that your mind works so awesome when you're here stop by cool everybody thanks for joining us for conversations with tom the stoics would say prepare for the day ahead and then you're supposed to reflect on the day that just passed and so that sort of process of preparing in the morning and reviewing in the evening allows me to never get too far from where I want to be.